Hey everybody, this is Ruben, and you're listening to Amazing Stories. He stands in the way of progress. The business I am in is the coming thing, the wave of the future. There are untold millions of dollars for everyone to make. But your father stands in the way because of certain unrealistic scruples. By doing this, he imposes his will on men like myself. Yes, yes, I know. He says to me, go ahead, it's your business. But we both know that is unrealistic. We must tread on each other's corns. What he is really telling me is that I cannot operate my business. I am a man who respects himself and cannot let another man impose his will on me. So what had to happen, did happen. Let me say that I had the support, the silent support of all the New York families. And the Tatalia family became my partners. If this quarrel continues, then the Corleone family will stand alone against everyone. Perhaps if your father were well, it could be done. But the eldest son is not the man the godfather is, no disrespect intended. And the Irish consigliere Hagen is not the man Jenko Abandando was, God rest his soul. So I propose a peace, a truce. Let us cease all hostilities until your father is well again and can take part in these bargainings. The Tatalia family agrees upon my persuasions and my indemnities to forego justice for their son Bruno. We will have peace. Meanwhile, I have to make a living and will do a little trading in my business. I do not ask your cooperation, but I ask you, the Corleone family, not to interfere. These are my proposals. I assume you have the authority to agree to make a deal. Michael said in Sicilian, Tell me more about how you propose to start your business, exactly what part my family has to play in it, and what profit we can take from this business. You want the whole proposition in detail, then? Most important of all, I must have sure guarantees that no more attempts will be made on my father's life. Salazzo raised his hand expressively. What guarantees can I give you? I'm the hunted one. I've missed my chance. You think too highly of me, my friend. I am not that clever. Michael was sure now that the conference was only to gain a few days' time, that Salazzo would make another attempt to kill the Don. What was beautiful was that the Turk was underrating him as a punk kid. Michael felt that strange, delicious chill filling his body. He made his face look distressed. What is it? The wine went right to my bladder. I've been holding it in. Is it all right if I go to the bathroom? Salazzo was searching his face intently with his dark eyes. He reached over and roughly thrust his hand in Michael's crotch, under it and around, searching for a weapon. Michael looked offended. I frisked him. I frisked thousands of young punks. He's clean. Salazzo didn't like it. For no reason at all, he didn't like it. He glanced at the man sitting at a table opposite them and raised his eyebrows toward the door of the bathroom. The man gave a slight nod that he had checked it, that there was nobody inside. Don't take too long. Salazzo had marvelous antennae. He was nervous. Michael got up and went into the bathroom. The urinal had a pink bar of soap in it, secured by a wire net. He went into the booth. He really had to go. His bowels were loose. He did it very quickly, then reached behind the enamel water cabinet until his hand touched the small, blunt-nosed gun fastened with tape. He ripped the gun loose, remembering that Clemenza had said not to worry about leaving prints on the tape. He shoved the gun into his waistband and buttoned his jacket over it. He washed his hands and wet his hair. He wiped his prints off the faucet with his handkerchief. Then he left the toilet. 
Salazzo was sitting directly facing the door of the toilet, his dark eyes blazing with alertness. Michael gave a smile. With a sigh of relief, he said, Now I can talk. Captain McCluskey was eating the plate of veal and spaghetti that had arrived. The man on the far wall had been stiff with attention. Now he too relaxed visibly. Michael sat down again. He remembered Clemenza had told him not to do this, to come out of the toilet and blaze away. But either out of some warning instinct or sheer funk, he had not done so. He had felt that if he had made one swift move, he would have been cut down. Now he felt safe. And he must have been scared, because he was glad he was no longer standing on his legs. They had gone weak with trembling. Salazzo was leaning toward him. Michael, his belly covered by the table, unbuttoned his jacket and listened intently. He could not understand a word the man was saying. It was literally gibberish to him. His mind was so filled with pounding blood that no word registered. Underneath the table, his right hand moved to the gun tucked into his waistband, and he drew it free. At that moment, the waiter came to take their order, and Salazzo turned his head to speak to the waiter. Michael thrust the table away from him with his left hand, and his right hand shoved the gun almost against Salazzo's head. The man's coordination was so acute that he had already begun to fling himself away at Michael's motion. But Michael, younger, his reflexes sharper, pulled the trigger. The bullet caught Salazzo squarely between his eye and his ear, and when it exited on the other side, blasted out a huge gout of blood and skull fragments onto the petrified waiter's jacket. Instinctively, Michael knew that one bullet was enough. Salazzo had turned his head in that last moment, and he had seen the light of life die in the man's eyes as clearly as a candle goes out. Only one second had gone by as Michael pivoted to bring the gun to bear on McCluskey. The police captain was staring at Salazzo with phlegmatic surprise, as if this had nothing to do with him. He did not seem to be aware of his own danger. His veal-covered fork was suspended in his hand, and his eyes were just turning on Michael. And the expression on his face, in his eyes, held such confident outrage, as if now he expected Michael to surrender or to run away, that Michael smiled at him as he pulled the trigger. This shot was bad, not mortal. It caught McCluskey in his thick, bull-like throat, and he started to choke loudly, as if he had swallowed too large a bite of the veal. Then the air seemed to fill with a fine mist of sprayed blood as he coughed it out of his shattered lungs. Very coolly, very deliberately, Michael fired the next shot through the top of his white-haired skull. The air seemed to be full of pink mist. Michael swung toward the man sitting against the wall. This man had not made a move. He seemed paralyzed. Now he carefully showed his hands on top of the table and looked away. The waiter was staggering back toward the kitchen, an expression of horror on his face, staring at Michael in disbelief. Salazzo was still in his chair, the side of his body propped up by the table. McCluskey, his heavy body pulling downward, had fallen off his chair onto the floor. Michael let the gun slip out of his hand so that it bounced off his body and made no noise. He saw that neither the man against the wall nor the waiter had noticed him dropping the gun. He strode the few steps toward the door and opened it. Salazzo's car was parked at the curb still, but there was no sign of the driver. Michael turned left and around the corner. Headlights flashed on, and a battered sedan pulled up to him, the door swinging open. He jumped in, and the car roared away. He saw that it was Tessio at the wheel, his trim features hard as marble. Did you do the job on Salazzo? For that moment, Michael was struck by the idiom Tessio had used. It was always used in a sexual sense. To do the job on a woman meant seducing her. It was curious that Tessio used it now. Both of them. Sure. I saw their brains. There was a change of clothes for Michael in the car. Twenty minutes later, he was on an Italian freighter slated for Sicily. Two hours later, 
The freighter put out to sea, and from his cabin, Michael could see the lights of New York City burning like the fires of hell. He felt an enormous sense of relief. He was out of it now. The feeling was familiar, and he remembered being taken off the beach of an island his Marine Division had invaded. The battle had been still going on, but he had received a slight wound and was being ferried back to a hospital ship. He had felt the same overpowering relief then that he felt now. All hell would break loose, but he wouldn't be there. On the day after the murder of Salazzo and Captain McCluskey, the police captains and lieutenants in every station house in New York City sent out the word. There would be no more gambling, no more prostitution, no more deals of any kind until the murderer of Captain McCluskey was caught. Massive raids began all over the city. All unlawful business activities came to a standstill. Later that day, an emissary from the families asked the Corleone family if they were prepared to give up the murderer. They were told that the affair did not concern them. That night, a bomb exploded in the Corleone family mall in Long Beach, thrown from a car that pulled up to the chain, then roared away. That night also, two button men of the Corleone family were killed as they peacefully ate their dinner in a small Italian restaurant in Greenwich Village. The Five Families' War of 1946 had begun. Book Two, Chapter Twelve Johnny Fontaine waved a casual dismissal to the manservant. See you in the morning, Billy. The colored butler bowed his way out of the huge dining room, living room, with its view of the Pacific Ocean. It was a friendly goodbye sort of bow, not a servant's bow, and given only because Johnny Fontaine had company for dinner. Johnny's company was a girl named Sharon Moore, a New York City Greenwich Village girl in Hollywood to try for a small part in a movie being produced by an old flame who had made the big time. She had visited the set while Johnny was acting in the Waltz movie. Johnny had found her young and fresh and charming and witty and had asked her to come to his place for dinner this evening. His invitations to dinner were already famous and had the force of royalty, and, of course, she said yes. Sharon Moore obviously expected him to come on very strong because of his reputation. But Johnny hated the Hollywood piece-of-meat approach. He never slept with any girl unless there was something about her he really liked, except, of course, sometimes when he was very drunk and found himself in bed with a girl he didn't even remember meeting or seeing before. And now that he was 35 years old, divorced once, estranged from his second wife, with maybe a thousand pubic scalps dangling from his belt, he simply wasn't that eager. But there was something about Sharon Moore that aroused affection in him, and so he had invited her to dinner. He never ate much, but he knew young pretty girls ambitiously starved themselves for pretty clothes and were usually big eaters on a date, so there was plenty of food on the table. There was also plenty of liquor. Champagne in a bucket, scotch, rye, brandy, and liqueurs on the sideboard. Johnny served the drinks and the plates of food already prepared. When they had finished eating, he led her into the huge living room with its glass wall that looked out onto the Pacific. He put a stack of Ella Fitzgerald records on the hi-fi and settled on the couch with Sharon. He made a little small talk with her, found out about what she had been like as a kid, whether she had been a tomboy or boy crazy, whether she had been homely or pretty, lonely or gay. He always found these details touching. It always evoked the tenderness he needed to make love. They nestled together on the sofa, very friendly, very comfortable. He kissed her on the lips, a cool, friendly kiss. And when she kept it that way, he left it that way. Outside the huge picture window, he could see the dark blue sheet of the Pacific lying flat beneath the moonlight. Sharon asked, How come you're not playing any of your records? Johnny smiled at her. He was amused by her teasing him. I'm not that Hollywood. Play some for me. 
or sing for me. You know, like the movies. I'll bubble up and melt all over you just like those girls do on the screen. Johnny laughed outright. When he had been younger, he had done just such things, and the result had always been stagey. The girls trying to look sexy and melting, making their eyes swim with desire for an imagined fantasy camera. He would never dream of singing to a girl now. For one thing, he hadn't sung for months. He didn't trust his voice. For another thing, amateurs didn't realize how much professionals depended on technical help to sound as good as they did. He could have played his records, but he felt the same shyness about hearing his youthful, passionate voice as an aging, balding man running to fat feels about showing pictures of himself as a youth in the full bloom of manhood. My voice is out of shape, and honestly, I'm sick of hearing myself sing. They both sipped their drinks. I hear you're great in this picture. Is it true you did it for nothing? Just a token payment. He got up to give her a refill on her brandy glass, gave her a gold monogrammed cigarette, and flashed his lighter out to hold the light for her. She puffed on the cigarette and sipped her drink, and he sat down beside her again. His glass had considerably more brandy in it than hers. He needed it to warm himself, to cheer himself, to charge himself up. His situation was the reverse of the lover's usual one. He had to get himself drunk instead of the girl. The girl was usually too willing, where he was not. The last two years had been hell on his ego, and he used this simple way to restore it, sleeping with a young, fresh girl for one night, taking her to dinner a few times, giving her an expensive present, and then brushing her off in the nicest way possible so that her feelings wouldn't be hurt. And then they could always say they had had a thing with the great Johnny Fontaine. It wasn't true love, but you couldn't knock it if the girl was beautiful and genuinely nice. He hated the hard, bitchy ones, the ones who screwed for him and then rushed off to tell their friends that they'd screwed the great Johnny Fontaine, always adding that they'd had better. What amazed him more than anything else in his career were the complacent husbands who almost told him to his face that they forgave their wives since it was allowed for even the most virtuous matron to be unfaithful with a great singing and movie star like Johnny Fontaine. That really floored him. He loved Ella Fitzgerald on records. He loved that kind of clean singing, that kind of clean phrasing. It was the only thing in life he really understood, and he knew he understood it better than anyone else on earth. Now, lying back on the couch, the brandy warming his throat, he felt a desire to sing. Not music, but to phrase with the records. Yet it was something impossible to do in front of a stranger. He put his free hand in Sharon's lap, sipping his drink from his other hand. Without any slyness, but with the sensualness of a child seeking warmth. His hand in her lap pulled up the silk of her dress to show milky white thigh above the sheer netted gold of her stockings. And as always, despite all the women, all the years, all the familiarity, Johnny felt the fluid, sticky warmness flooding through his body at that sight. The miracle still happened. And what would he do when that failed him as his voice had? He was ready now. He put his drink down on the long inlaid cocktail table and turned his body toward her. He was very sure, very deliberate, and yet tender. There was nothing sly or lecherously lascivious in his caresses. He kissed her on the lips while his hands rose to her breasts. His hand fell to her warm thighs, the skin so silky to his touch. Her returning kiss was warm, but not passionate, and he preferred it that way right now. He hated girls who turned on all of a sudden as if their bodies were motors galvanized into erotic pumpings by the touching of a hairy switch. Then he did something he always did, something that had never yet failed to arouse him. Delicately and as lightly as it was possible to do so and still feel something, he brushed the tip of his middle finger deep down between her thighs, 
Some girls never even felt that initial move toward lovemaking. Some were distracted by it, not sure it was a physical touch, because at the same time he always kissed them deeply on the mouth. Still others seemed to suck in his finger or gobble it up with a pelvic thrust. And of course, before he became famous, some girls had slapped his face. It was his whole technique, and usually it served him well enough. Sharon's reaction was unusual. She accepted it all, the touch, the kiss, then shifted her mouth off his, shifted her body ever so slightly back along the couch and picked up her drink. It was a cool but definite refusal. It happened sometimes, rarely, but it happened. Johnny picked up his drink and lit a cigarette. She was saying something very sweetly, very lightly. It's not that I don't like you, Johnny. You're much nicer than I thought you'd be. And it's not because I'm not that kind of a girl. It's just that I have to be turned on to do it with a guy. You know what I mean? Johnny Fontaine smiled at her. He still liked her. And I don't turn you on? She was a little embarrassed. Well, you know, when you were so great singing and all, I was still a little kid. I sort of just missed you. I was the next generation. Honest, it's not that I'm goody-goody. If you were James Dean or somebody I grew up on, I'd have my panties off in a second. He didn't like her quite so much now. She was sweet, she was witty, she was intelligent. She hadn't fallen all over herself to screw for him or try to hustle him because his connections would help her in showbiz. She was really a straight kid. But there was something else he recognized. It had happened a few times before. The girl who went on a date with her mind all made up not to go to bed with him, no matter how much she liked him, just so that she could tell her friends, and even more, herself, that she had turned down a chance to screw for the great Johnny Fontaine. It was something he understood now that he was older, and he wasn't angry. He just didn't like her quite that much, and he had really liked her a lot. And now that he didn't like her quite so much, he relaxed more. He sipped his drink and watched the Pacific Ocean. I hope you're not sore, Johnny. I guess I'm being square. I guess... In Hollywood, a girl's supposed to put out just as casually as kissing a beau goodnight. I just haven't been around long enough. Johnny smiled at her and patted her cheek. His hand fell down to pull her skirt discreetly over her rounded silken knees. I'm not sore. It's nice having an old-fashioned date. Not telling what he felt. The relief at not having to prove himself a great lover. Not having to live up to his screened, godlike image. Not having to listen to the girl trying to react as if he really had lived up to that image making more out of a very simple, routine piece of ass than it really was. They had another drink, shared a few more cool kisses, and then she decided to go. Can I call you for a dinner some night? She played it frank and honest to the end. I know you don't want to waste your time and then get disappointed. Thanks for a wonderful evening. Someday I'll tell my children I had supper with the great Johnny Fontaine, all alone in his apartment. He smiled at her. And that you didn't give in. They both laughed. <laughs> They'll never believe that. And then Johnny, being a little phony in his turn, said, I'll give it to you in writing. Want me to? She shook her head. He continued on. Anybody doubts you? Give me a buzz on the phone. I'll straighten them right out. I'll tell them how I chased you all around the apartment, but you kept your honor, okay? He had finally been a little too cruel, and he felt stricken at the hurt on her young face. She understood that he was telling her that he hadn't tried too hard. He had taken the sweetness of her victory away from her. Now she would feel that it had been her lack of charm or attractiveness that had made her the victor this night. And being the girl she was, when she told the story of how she resisted the great Johnny Fontaine, she would always have to add with a wry little smile. Of course, he didn't try very hard. So now taking pity on her, he said, 
If you ever feel real down, give me a ring, okay? I don't have to shack up every girl I know. I will. She went out the door. He was left with a long evening before him. He could have used what Jack Waltz called the meat factory, the stable of willing starlets. But he wanted human companionship. He wanted to talk like a human being. He thought of his first wife, Virginia. Now that the work on the picture was finished, he would have more time for the kids. He wanted to become part of their life again. And he worried about Virginia, too. She wasn't equipped to handle the Hollywood Sharpies who might come after her just so that they could brag about having screwed Johnny Fontaine's first wife. As far as he knew, nobody could say that yet. Everybody could say it about his second wife, though, he thought wryly. He picked up the phone. He recognized her voice immediately, and that was not surprising. He had heard it the first time when he was ten years old, and they had been in 4B together. Hi, Ginny. You busy tonight? Can I come over for a little while? All right. The kids are sleeping, though. I don't want to wake them up. That's okay. I just wanted to talk to you. Her voice hesitated slightly. Then, carefully controlled, not to show any concern, she asked. Is it anything serious? Anything important? No. I finished the picture today, and I thought maybe I could just see you and talk to you. Maybe I could take a look at the kids, if you're sure they won't wake up. Okay. I'm glad you got that part you wanted. Thanks. I'll see you in about a half hour. When he got to what had been his home in Beverly Hills, Johnny Fontaine sat in the car for a moment, staring at the house. He remembered what his godfather had said, that he could make his own life what he wanted. Great chance if you knew what you wanted. But what did he want? His first wife was waiting for him at the door. She was pretty, petite and brunette, a nice Italian girl, the girl next door who would never fool around with another man, and that had been important to him. Did he still want her, he asked himself, and the answer was no. For one thing, he could no longer make love to her. Their affection had grown too old. And there were some things, nothing to do with sex, she could never forgive him. But they were no longer enemies. She made him coffee and served him homemade cookies in the living room. Stretch out on the sofa. You look tired. He took off his jacket and his shoes and loosened his tie while she sat in the chair opposite him with a grave little smile on her face. It's funny. What's funny? He asked her, sipping coffee and spilling some of it on his shirt. The great Johnny Fontaine, stuck without a date. The great Johnny Fontaine is lucky if he can even get it up anymore. It was unusual for him to be so direct. Is there something really the matter? Johnny grinned at her. I had a date with a girl in my apartment, and she brushed me off. And you know, I was relieved. To his surprise, he saw a look of anger pass over Jenny's face. Don't worry about those little tramps. She must have thought that was the way to get you interested in her. And Johnny realized with amusement that Jenny was actually angry with the girl who had turned him down. Ah, what the hell. I'm tired of that stuff. I have to grow up sometime. Now that I can't sing anymore, I guess I'll have a tough time with dames. I never got in on my looks, you know. You were always better looking than you photographed. Johnny shook his head. I'm getting fat and I'm getting bald. Hell, if this picture doesn't make me big again, I better learn how to bake pizzas. Or maybe we'll put you in the movies. You look great. She looked 35. A good 35, but 35. And out here in Hollywood, that might as well be a hundred. The young, beautiful girls thronged through the city like lemmings, lasting one year, some two, some of them so beautiful they could make a man's heart almost stop beating until they opened their mouths, until the greedy hopes for success clouded the loveliness of their eyes. Ordinary women could never hope to compete with them on a physical level. And you could talk all you wanted to about charm, about intelligence, about chic, about poise. The raw beauty of these girls overpowered everything else. Perhaps, if there were not so many of them, there might be a chance for an ordinary, nice-looking woman. 
And since Johnny Fontaine could have all of them, or nearly all of them, Jenny knew that he was saying all this just to flatter her. He had always been nice that way. He had always been polite to women, even at the height of his fame, paying them compliments, holding lights for their cigarettes, opening doors. And since all this was usually done for him, it made it even more impressive to the girls he went out with. And he did it with all girls, even the one-night stands. I don't know your name, girls. She smiled at him, a friendly smile. You already made me, Johnny. Remember? For twelve years. You don't have to give me your line. He sighed and stretched out on the sofa. No kidding, Ginny. You look good. I wish I looked that good. She didn't answer him. She could see he was depressed. Do you think the picture is okay? Will it do you some good? Johnny nodded. Yeah. It could bring me all the way back. If I get the Academy thing and play my cards right, I can make it big again even without the singing. Then maybe I can give you and the kids more dough. We have more than enough. I want to see more of the kids, too. I want to settle down a little bit. Why can't I come every Friday night for dinner here? I swear, I'll never miss one Friday. I don't care how far away I am or how busy I am. And then whenever I can, I'll spend weekends, or maybe the kids can spend some part of their vacations with me. Jenny put an ashtray on his chest. It's okay with me. I never got married because I wanted you to keep being their father. She said this without any kind of emotion, but Johnny Fontaine, staring up at the ceiling, knew she said it as an atonement for those other things, the cruel things she had once said to him when their marriage had broken up, when his career had started going down the drain. By the way, guess who called me? Johnny wouldn't play that game. He never did. Who? You could take at least one lousy guess. Johnny didn't answer. Your godfather. Johnny was really surprised. He never talks to anybody on the phone. What did he say to you? He told me to help you. He said you could be as big as you ever were, that you were on your way back, but that you needed people to believe in you. I asked him, why should I? And he said, because you're the father of my children. He's such a sweet old guy, and they tell such horrible stories about him. Virginia hated phones, and she had had all the extensions taken out, except for the one in her bedroom and one in the kitchen. Now they could hear the kitchen phone ringing. She went to answer it. When she came back into the living room, there was a look of surprise on her face. It's for you, Johnny. It's Tom Hagen. He says it's important. Johnny went into the kitchen and picked up the phone. Yeah, Tom. Johnny, the Godfather wants me to come out and see you and set some things up that can help you out now that the picture's finished. He wants me to catch the morning plane. Can you meet it in Los Angeles? I have to fly back to New York the same night, so you won't have to worry about keeping your night free for me. Sure, Tom. And don't worry about me losing a night. Stay over and relax a bit. I'll throw a party and you can meet some movie people. He always made that offer. He didn't want the folks from his old neighborhood to think he was ashamed of them. Thanks, but I really have to catch the early morning plane back. Okay, you'll meet the 11.30 a.m. out of New York? Sure. Stay in your car. Send one of your people to meet me when I get off the plane and bring me to you. Right. He went back to the living room, and Jenny looked at him inquiringly. My godfather has some plans for me to help me out. He got me the part in the movie, I don't know how, but I wish he'd stay out of the rest of it. He went back onto the sofa. He felt very tired. Why don't you sleep in the guest bedroom tonight instead of going home? You can have breakfast with the kids and you won't have to drive home so late. I hate to think of you all alone in that house of yours anyway. Don't you get lonely? I don't stay home much. She laughed. <laughs> then you haven't changed much. She paused and then said, Shall I fix up the other bedroom? Why can't I sleep in your bedroom? She flushed. No. She smiled at him, and he smiled back. They were still friends. When Johnny woke up the next morning, it was late. He could tell by the sun coming in through the drawn blinds. Never came in that way unless it was in the afternoon. Hey, Ginny, 
Do I still rate breakfast? And far away, he heard her voice call, Just a second. And it was just a second. She must have had everything ready, hot in the oven, the tray waiting to be loaded, because as Johnny lit his first cigarette of the day, the door of the bedroom opened and his two small daughters came in, wheeling the breakfast cart. They were so beautiful, it broke his heart. Their faces were shining and clear, their eyes alive with curiosity and the eager desire to run to him. They wore their hair braided old-fashioned in long pigtails, and they wore old-fashioned frocks and white patent leather shoes. They stood by the breakfast cart watching him as he stubbed out his cigarette and waited for him to call and hold his arms wide. Then they came running to him. He pressed his face between their two fresh, fragrant cheeks and scraped them with his beard so that they shrieked. Jenny appeared in the bedroom door and wheeled the breakfast cart the rest of the way so that he could eat in bed. She sat beside him on the edge of the bed, pouring his coffee, buttering his toast. The two young daughters sat on the bedroom couch watching him. They were too old now for pillow fights or to be tossed around. They were already smoothing their must hair. Oh, Christ, he thought, pretty soon they'll be all grown up. Hollywood punks will be out after them. He shared his toast and bacon with them as he ate, giving them sips of coffee. It was a habit left over from when he had been singing with the band and rarely ate with them, so they liked to share his food when he had his odd-hour meals, like afternoon breakfasts or morning suppers. The change-around in food delighted them, to eat steak and french fries at seven in the morning, bacon and eggs in the afternoon. Only Jenny and a few of his close friends knew how much he idolized his daughters. That had been the worst thing about the divorce and leaving home. The one thing he had fought about, and for, was his position as a father to them. In a very sly way, he had made Jenny understand he would not be pleased by her remarrying, not because he was jealous of her, but because he was jealous of his position as a father. He had arranged the money to be paid to her so it would be enormously to her advantage financially not to remarry. It was understood that she could have lovers as long as they were not introduced into her home life. But on this score, he had absolute faith in her. She had always been amazingly shy and old-fashioned in sex, The Hollywood gigolos had batted zero when they started swarming around her, sniffing for the financial settlement and the favors they could get from her famous husband. He had no fear that she expected a reconciliation because he had wanted to sleep with her the night before. Neither one of them wanted to renew their old marriage. She understood his hunger for beauty, his irresistible impulse toward young women, far more beautiful than she. It was known that he always slept with his movie co-stars at least once. His boyish charm was irresistible to them, as their beauty was to him. You'll have to start getting dressed pretty soon. Tom's plane will be getting in. She shooed the daughters out of the room. Yeah. By the way, Ginny, you know I'm getting divorced? I'm going to be a free man again. She watched him getting dressed. He always kept fresh clothes at her house ever since they had come to their new arrangement after the wedding of Don Corleone's daughter. Christmas is only two weeks away. Shall I plan on you being here? It was the first time he had even thought about the holidays. When his voice was in shape, holidays were lucrative singing dates. But even then, Christmas was sacred. If he missed this one, it would be the second one. Last year, he had been courting his second wife in Spain, trying to get her to marry him. Yeah, Christmas Eve and Christmas. He didn't mention New Year's Eve. That would be one of the wild nights he needed every once in a while, to get drunk with his friends. And he didn't want a wife along then. He didn't feel guilty about it. She helped him put on his jacket and brushed it off. He was always fastidiously neat. She could see him frowning because the shirt he had put on was not laundered to his taste. The cufflinks, a pair he had not worn for some time, were a little too loud for the way he liked to dress now. She laughed softly. Tom won't notice the difference. The three women of the family walked him to the door and out on the driveway to his car. The two little girls held his hands, one on each side. 
His wife walked a little behind him. She was getting pleasure out of how happy he looked. When he reached his car, he turned around and swung each girl in turn high up in the air and kissed her on the way down. Then he kissed his wife and got into the car. He never liked drawn-out goodbyes. Arrangements had been made by his PR man and aide. At his house, a chauffeured car was waiting, a rented car. In it were the PR man and another member of his entourage. Johnny parked his car and hopped in, and they were on their way to the airport. He waited inside the car while the PR man went out to meet Tom Hagen's plane. When Tom got into the car, they shook hands and drove back to his house. Finally, he and Tom were alone in the living room. There was a coolness between them. Johnny had never forgiven Hagen for acting as a barrier to his getting in touch with the Don when the Don was angry with him in those bad days before Connie's wedding. Hagen never made excuses for his actions. He could not. It was part of his job to act as a lightning rod for resentments which people were too awed to feel toward the Don himself, though he had earned them. Your godfather sent me out here to give you a hand on some things. I wanted to get it out of the way before Christmas. Johnny Fontaine shrugged. The picture is finished. The director was a square guy and treated me right. My scenes are too important to be left on the cutting room floor just for Waltz to pay me off. He can't ruin a $10 million picture. So now everything depends on how good people think I am in the movie. Is winning this Academy Award so terribly important to an actor's career? Or is it just the usual publicity crap that really doesn't mean anything one way or the other? He paused. Except, of course, the glory. Everybody likes glory. Johnny Fontaine grinned at him. Except my godfather, and you. No, Tom, it's not a lot of crap. An Academy Award can make an actor for ten years. He can get his pick of roles. The public goes to see him. It's not everything, but for an actor, it's the most important thing in the business. I'm counting on winning it. Not because I'm such a great actor, but because I'm known primarily as a singer, and the part is foolproof. And I'm pretty good, too. No kidding. Tom Hagen shrugged. Your godfather tells me that the way things stand now, you don't have a chance of winning the award. Johnny Fontaine was angry. What the hell are you talking about? The picture hasn't even been cut yet, much less shown. And the Don isn't even in the movie business. Why the hell did you fly to 3,000 miles just to tell me that shit? He was so shaken, he was almost in tears. Johnny, I don't know a damn thing about all this movie stuff. Remember, I'm just a messenger boy for the Don. But we have discussed this whole business of yours many times. He worries about you, about your future. He feels you still need his help, and he wants to settle your problem once and for all. That's why I'm here now, to get things rolling. But you have to start growing up, Johnny. You have to stop thinking about yourself as a singer or an actor. You've got to start thinking about yourself as a prime mover, as a guy with muscle. Johnny Fontaine laughed and filled his glass. If I don't win that Oscar, I'll have as much muscle as one of my daughters. My voice is gone. If I had that back, I could make some moves. Oh, hell. How does my godfather know I won't win it? Okay, I believe he knows. He's never been wrong. Hagen lit a thin cigar. We got the word that Jack Waltz won't spend studio money to support your candidacy. In fact, he sent the word out to everybody who votes that he does not want you to win. But holding back the money for ads and all that may do it. He's also arranging to have one other guy get as much of the opposition votes as he can swing. He's using all sorts of bribes. Jobs, money, broads, everything. And he's trying to do it without hurting the picture, or hurting it as little as possible. Johnny Fontaine shrugged. He filled his glass with whiskey and downed it. Then I'm dead. Hagen was watching him with his mouth curled up with distaste. Drinking won't help your voice. Fuck you. Hagen's face suddenly became smoothly impassive. Then he said, Okay, I'll keep this purely business. Johnny Fontaine put his drink down and went over to stand in front of Hagen. I'm sorry I said that, Tom. Christ, I'm sorry. I'm taking it out on you because I want to kill that bastard Jack Waltz and I'm afraid to tell off my godfather. So I get sore at you. 
There were tears in his eyes. He threw the empty whiskey glass against the wall, but so weakly that the heavy shot glass did not even shatter, and rolled along the floor back to him, so that he looked down at it in baffled fury. Then he laughed. Jesus Christ. He walked over to the other side of the room and sat opposite Hagen. You know, I had everything my own way for a long time. Then I divorced Ginny and everything started going sour. I lost my voice, my records stopped selling, I didn't get any more movie work. And then my godfather got sore at me and wouldn't talk to me on the phone or see me when I came into New York. You were always the guy barring the path and I blamed you, but I knew you wouldn't do it without orders from the Don. But you can't get sore at him. It's like getting sore at God. So I curse you. But you've been right all along the line. And to show you I mean my apology, I'm taking your advice. No more booze until I get my voice back, okay? The apology was sincere. Hagen forgot his anger. There must be something to this 35-year-old boy or the Don would not be so fond of him. Forget it, Johnny. He was embarrassed at the depth of Johnny's feeling and embarrassed by the suspicion that it might have been inspired by fear, fear that he might turn the Don against him. And, of course, the Don could never be turned by anyone for any reason. His affection was mutable only by himself. Things aren't so bad. The Don says he can cancel out everything Waltz does against you, that you will almost certainly win the award. But he feels that won't solve your problem. He wants to know if you have the brains and balls to become a producer on your own, make your own movies from top to bottom. How the hell is he going to get me the award? How do you find it so easy to believe that Waltz can finagle it and your godfather can't? Now, since it's necessary to get your faith for the other part of our deal, I must tell you this, just keep it to yourself. Your godfather is a much more powerful man than Jack Waltz, and he is much more powerful in areas far more critical. How can he swing the award? He controls or controls the people who control all the labor unions in the industry, all the people or nearly all the people who vote. Of course you have to be good, you have to be in contention on your own merits. And your godfather has more brains than Jack Waltz. He doesn't go up to these people and put a gun to their heads and say, vote for Johnny Fontaine or you are out of a job. He doesn't strong arm where strong arm doesn't work or leaves too many hard feelings. He'll make those people vote for you because they want to. But they won't want to unless he takes an interest. Now just take my word for it that he can get you the award. And that if he doesn't do it, you won't get it. Okay. I believe you. And I have the balls and brains to be a producer, but I don't have the money. No bank would finance me. It takes millions to support a movie. When you get the award, start making plans to produce three of your own movies. Hire the best people in the business, the best technicians, the best stars, whoever you need. Plan on three to five movies. You're crazy. That many movies could mean 20 million bucks. When you need the money, get in touch with me. I'll give you the name of the bank out here in California to ask for financing. Don't worry, they finance movies all the time. Just ask them for the money in the ordinary way with the proper justifications like a regular business deal. They will approve. But first, you have to see me and tell me the figures and the plans, okay? Johnny was silent for a long time. Is there anything else? Hagen smiled. You mean, do you have to do any favors in return for a loan of $20 million? Sure you will. He waited for Johnny to say something. Nothing you wouldn't do anyway if the Don asked you to do it for him. The Don has to ask me himself if it's something serious, you know what I mean? I won't take your word or Sonny's for it. Hagen was surprised by this good sense. Fontaine had some brains after all. He had sense to know that the Don was too fond of him and too smart to ask him to do something foolishly dangerous, whereas Sonny might. Let me reassure you on one thing. Your godfather has given me and Sonny strict instructions not to involve you in any way in anything that might get you bad publicity through our fault. And he will never do that himself. 
I guarantee you that any favor he asks of you, you will offer to do before he requests it, okay? Johnny smiled. Okay. Also, he has faith in you. He thinks you have brains, and so he figures the bank will make money on the investment, which means he will make money on it. So it's really a business deal. Never forget that. Don't go screwing around with the money. You may be his favorite godson, but 20 million bucks is a lot of dough. He has to stick his neck out to make sure you get it. Tell him not to worry. If a guy like Jack Waltz can be a big movie genius, anybody can. That's what your godfather figures. Can you have me driven back to the airport? I've said all I have to say. When you do start signing contracts for everything, hire your own lawyers. I won't be in on it. But I'd like to see everything before you sign, if that's okay with you. Also, you'll never have any labor troubles. That'll cut costs on your pictures to some extent. So when the accountants lump some of that in, disregard those figures. Do I have to get your okay on anything else? Scripts, stars, any of that? Hagen shook his head. No, it may happen that the Don would object to something, but he'll object to you direct if he does. But I can't imagine what that would be. Movies don't affect him at all in any way, so he has no interest. And he doesn't believe in meddling. That I can tell you from experience. Good. I'll drive you to the airport myself and thank the Godfather for me. I'd call him up and thank him, but he never comes to the phone. Why is that, by the way? Hagen shrugged. He hardly ever talks on the phone. He doesn't want his voice recorded, even saying something perfectly innocent. He's afraid that they can splice the words together so that it sounds as if he says something else. I think that's what it is. Anyway, his only worry is that someday he'll be framed by the authorities, so he doesn't want to give him an edge. They got into Johnny's car and drove to the airport. Hagen was thinking that Johnny was a better guy than he figured. He'd already learned something, just his driving him personally to the airport proved that. The personal courtesy, something the Don himself always believed in. And the apology. That had been sincere. He had known Johnny a long time, and he knew the apology would never be made out of fear. Johnny had always had guts. That's why he had always been in trouble. With his movie bosses, and with his women. He was also one of the few people who was not afraid of the Don. Fontaine and Michael were maybe the only two men Hagen knew of whom this could be said. So, the apology was sincere. He would accept it as such. He and Johnny would have to see a lot of each other in the next few years, and Johnny would have to pass the next test, which would prove how smart he was. He would have to do something for the Don that the Don would never ask him to do or insist that he do as part of the agreement. Hagen wondered if Johnny Fontaine was smart enough to figure out that part of the bargain. After Johnny dropped Hagen off at the airport, Hagen insisted that Johnny not hang around for his plane with him, he drove back to Jenny's house. She was surprised to see him. But he wanted to stay at her place so that he would have time to think things out, to make his plans. He knew that what Hagen had told him was extremely important, that his whole life was being changed. He had once been a big star, but now, at the young age of 35, he was washed up. He didn't kid himself about that. Even if he won the award as best actor, what the hell could it mean at the most? Nothing if his voice didn't come back. He'd be just second-rate, with no real power, no real juice. Even that girl turning him down. She had been nice and smart and acting sort of hip, but would she have been so cool if he had really been at the top? Now, with the Don backing him with dough, he could be as big as anybody in Hollywood. He could be a king. Johnny smiled. Hell, he could even be a Don. It would be nice living with Jenny again for a few weeks, maybe longer. He'd take the kids out every day, maybe have a few friends over. He'd stop drinking and smoking, really take care of himself. Maybe his voice would get strong again. If that happened, and with the Don's money, he'd be unbeatable. He'd really be as close to an old-time king or emperor as it was possible to be in America. 
and it wouldn't depend on his voice holding up or how long the public cared about him as an actor. It would be an empire rooted in money and the most special, the most coveted kind of power. Jenny had the guest bedroom made up for him. It was understood that he would not share her room, that they would not live as man and wife. They could never have that relationship again. And though the outside world of gossip columnists and movie fans gave the blame for the failure of their marriage solely to him, yet in a curious way, between the two of them, they both knew that she was even more to blame for their divorce. When Johnny Fontaine became the most popular singer and movie musical comedy star in motion pictures, it had never occurred to him to desert his wife and children. He was too Italian, still too old style. Naturally, he had been unfaithful. That had been impossible to avoid in his business and the temptations to which he was continually exposed. And despite being a skinny, delicate-looking guy, he had the wiry horniness of many small-boned Latin types. And women delighted him in their surprises. He loved going out with a demure, sweet-faced, virginal-looking girl and then uncapping her breasts to find them so unexpectedly, slopingly full and rich, lewdly heavy in contrast to the cameo face. He loved to find sexual shyness and timidity in the sexy-looking girls who were all fake motion like a shifty basketball player, vamping as if they had slept with a hundred guys. And then, when he got them alone, having to battle for hours to get in and do the job and finding out they were virgins, and all these Hollywood guys laughed at his fondness for virgins. They called it an old guinea taste, square. And look how long it took to make a virgin give you a blowjob with all the aggravation, and then they usually turned out to be a lousy piece of ass. But Johnny knew that it was how you handled a young girl. You had to come on to her the right way. And then, what could be greater than a girl who was tasting her first dick and loving it? Ah, it was so great breaking them in. It was so great having them wrap their legs around you. Their thighs were all different shapes. Their asses were different. Their skins were all different colors and shades of white and brown and tan. And when he had slept with that young colored girl in Detroit, a good girl, not a hustler, the young daughter of a jazz singer on the same nightclub bill with him, she had been one of the sweetest things he had ever had. Her lips had really tasted like warm honey with pepper mixed in it. Her dark brown skin was rich, creamy, and she had been as sweet as God had ever made any woman, and she had been a virgin. And the other guys were always talking about blowjobs this and other variations, and he didn't really enjoy that stuff so much. He never liked a girl that much after they tried it that way. It just didn't satisfy him right. He and his second wife had finally not got along because she preferred the old 69 too much, to a point where she didn't want anything else, and he had to fight to stick it in. She began making fun of him and calling him a square, and the word got around that he made love like a kid. Maybe that was why that girl last night had turned him down. Well, the hell with it. She wouldn't be too great in the sack anyway. You could tell a girl who really liked to fuck, and they were always the best, especially the ones who hadn't been at it too long. What he really hated were the ones who had started screwing at 12 and were all fucked out by the time they were 20 and just going through the motions, and some of them were the prettiest of all and could fake you out. Jenny brought coffee and cake into his bedroom and put it on the long table in the sitting room part. He told her simply that Hagen was helping him put together the money credit for a producing package, and she was excited about that. He would be important again. But she had no idea of how powerful Don Corleone really was, so she didn't understand the significance of Hagen coming from New York. He told her Hagen was also helping with legal details. When they had finished the coffee, he told her he was going to work that night and make phone calls and plans for the future. He told her, Half of all this will be in the kids' names. She gave him a grateful smile and kissed him goodnight before she left his room. There was a glass dish full of his favorite monogrammed cigarettes, a humidor with pencil-thin black Cuban cigars on his writing desk. Johnny tilted back and started making calls. His brain was really whirring along. 
He called the author of the book, the best-selling novel, on which his new film was based. The author was a guy his own age who had come up the hard way and was now a celebrity in the literary world. He had come out to Hollywood expecting to be treated like a wheel and, like most authors, had been treated like shit. Johnny had seen the humiliation of the author one night at the Brown Derby. The writer had been fixed up with a well-known boozemy starlet for a date on the town and a sure shack up later. But while they were at dinner, the starlet had deserted the famous author because a ratty-looking movie comic had waggled his finger at her. That had given the writer the right slant on just who was who in the Hollywood pecking order. It didn't matter that his book had made him world famous. A starlet would prefer the crummiest, the rattiest, the phoniest movie wheel. Now, Johnny called the author at his New York home to thank him for the great part he had written in his book for him. He flattered the shit out of the guy. Then, casually, he asked him how he was doing on his next novel and what it was all about. He lit a cigar while the author told him about a specially interesting chapter and then finally said, Gee, I'd like to read it when you're finished. How about sending me a copy? Maybe I can get you a good deal for it. Better than you got with Waltz. The eagerness in the author's voice told him that he had guessed right. Waltz had chiseled the guy, given him peanuts for the book. Johnny mentioned that he might be in New York right after the holidays, and would the author want to come and have dinner with some of his friends? I know a few good-looking broads. The author laughed and said, okay. Next, Johnny called up the director and cameraman on the film he had just finished to thank them for having helped him in the film. He told them confidentially that he knew Waltz had been against him, and he doubly appreciated their help, and that if there was ever anything he could do for them, they should just call. Then he made the hardest call of all, the one to Jack Waltz. He thanked him for the part in the picture and told him how happy he would be to work for him any time. He did this merely to throw Waltz off the track. He had always been very square, very straight. In a few days, Waltz would find out about his maneuvering and be astounded by the treachery of this call, which was exactly what Johnny Fontaine wanted him to feel. After that, he sat at the desk and puffed at his cigar. There was whiskey on a side table, but he had made some sort of promise to himself and Hagen that he wouldn't drink. He shouldn't even be smoking. It was foolish. Whatever was wrong with his voice probably wouldn't be helped by knocking off drinking and smoking. Not too much, but what the hell, it might help, and he wanted all the percentages with him, now that he had a fighting chance. Now, with the house quiet, his divorced wife sleeping, his beloved daughter sleeping, he could think back to that terrible time in his life when he had deserted them. Deserted them for a whore tramp of a bitch who was his second wife. But even now he smiled at the thought of her. She was such a lovely broad in so many ways. And besides, the only thing that saved his life was the day that he had made up his mind never to hate a woman, or, more specifically, the day he had decided he could not afford to hate his first wife and his daughters, his girlfriends, his second wife, and the girlfriends after that, right up to Sharon Moore brushing him off so that she could brag about refusing to screw for the great Johnny Fontaine. He had traveled with the band singing, and then he had become a radio star and a star of the movie stage shows, and then he had finally made it in the movies. And in all that time, he had lived the way he wanted to, screwed the women he wanted to, but he had never let it affect his personal life. Then he had fallen for his soon-to-be second wife, Margot Ashton. He had gone absolutely crazy for her. His career had gone to hell. His voice had gone to hell. His family life had gone to hell. And there had come the day when he was left without anything. The thing was, he had always been generous and fair. He had given his first wife everything he owned when he divorced her. He had made sure his two daughters would get a piece of everything he made, every record, every movie, every club date. And when he had been rich and famous, he had refused his first wife nothing. He had helped out all her brothers and sisters, her father and mother, the girlfriends she had gone to school with, and their families. He had never been a stuck-up celebrity. 
He had sung at the weddings of his wife's two younger sisters, something he hated to do. He had never refused her anything except the complete surrender of his own personality. And then, when he had touched bottom, when he could no longer get movie work, when he could no longer sing, when his second wife had betrayed him, he had gone to spend a few days with Ginny and his daughters. He had more or less flung himself on her mercy one night because he felt so lousy. That day, he had heard one of his recordings, and he had sounded so terrible that he accused the sound technicians of sabotaging the record, until finally he had become convinced that that was what his voice really sounded like. He had smashed the master record and refused to sing anymore. He was so ashamed that he had not sung a note except with Nino at Connie Corleone's wedding. He had never forgotten the look on Jenny's face when she found out about all his misfortunes. It had passed over her face only for a second, but that was enough for him never to forget it. It was a look of savage and joyful satisfaction. It was a look that could only make him believe that she had contemptuously hated him all these years. She quickly recovered and offered him cool but polite sympathy. He had pretended to accept it. During the next few days, he had gone to see three of the girls he had liked the most over the years, girls he had remained friends with and sometimes still slept with in a comradely way, girls he had done everything in his power to help, girls to whom he had given the equivalent of hundreds of thousands of dollars in gifts or job opportunities. On their faces, he had caught that same fleeting look of savage satisfaction. It was during that time that he knew he had to make a decision. He could become like a great many other men in Hollywood, successful producers, writers, directors, actors, who preyed on beautiful women with lustful hatred. He could use power and monetary favors grudgingly, always alert for treason, always believing that women would betray and desert him, adversaries to be bested. Or he could refuse to hate women and continue to believe in them. He knew he could not afford not to love them, that something of his spirit would die if he did not continue to love women no matter how treacherous and unfaithful they were. It didn't matter that the women he loved most in the world were secretly glad to see him crushed, humiliated by a wayward fortune. It did not matter that in the most awful way, not sexually, they had been unfaithful to him. He had no choice. He had to accept them. And so he made love to all of them, gave them presents, hid the hurt their enjoyment of his misfortunes gave him. He forgave them, knowing he was being paid back for having lived in the utmost freedom from women and in the fullest flush of their flavor. But now, he never felt guilty about being untrue to them. He never felt guilty about how he treated Jenny, insisting on remaining the sole father of his children, yet never even considering remarrying her and letting her know that, too. That was one thing he had salvaged out of his fall from the top. He had grown a thick skin about the hurts he gave women. He was tired and ready for bed, but one note of memory stuck with him, singing with Nino Valente, and suddenly he knew what would please Don Corleone more than anything else. He picked up the phone and told the operator to get him New York. He called Sonny Corleone and asked him for Nino Valenti's number. Then he called Nino. Nino sounded a little drunk, as usual. Hey, Nino, how'd you like to come out here and work for me? I need a guy I can trust. Nino, kidding around, said, Gee, I don't know, Johnny. I got a good job on the truck. Buffing housewives along my route, picking up a clear hundred fifty every week. What you got to offer? I can start you at 500 and get you blind dates with movie stars. How's that? And maybe I'll let you sing at my parties. Yeah, okay, let me think about it. Let me talk it over with my lawyer and my accountant and my helper on the truck. Hey, no kidding around, Nino. I need you out here. I want you to fly out tomorrow morning and sign a personal contract for 500 a week for a year. Then if you steal one of my broads and I fire you, you pick up at least a year's salary, okay? There was a long pause. Nino's voice was sober. Hey, Johnny, you kidding? I'm serious, kid. 
Go to my agent's office in New York. They'll have your plane ticket and some cash. I'm going to call them first thing in the morning. So you go up there in the afternoon, okay? Then I'll have somebody meet you at the plane and bring you out to the house. Again, there was a long pause. And then Nino's voice, very subdued, uncertain, said, Okay, Johnny. He didn't sound drunk anymore. Johnny hung up the phone and got ready for bed. He felt better than any time since he had smashed that master record. Chapter 13 Johnny Fontaine sat in the huge recording studio and figured costs on a yellow pad. Musicians were filing in, all of them friends he had known since he was a kid singer with the bands. The conductor, top man in the business of pop accompaniment, and a man who had been kind to him when things went sour, was giving each musician bundles of music and verbal instructions. His name was Eddie Niels. He had taken on this recording as a favor to Johnny, though his schedule was crowded. Nino Valente was sitting at a piano, fooling around nervously with the keys. He was also sipping from a huge glass of rye. Johnny didn't mind that. He knew Nino sang just as well drunk as sober, and what they were doing today wouldn't require any real musicianship on Nino's part. Eddie Niels had made special arrangements of some old Italian and Sicilian songs, and a special job on the dual duet song that Nino and Johnny had sung at Connie Corleone's wedding. Johnny was making the record primarily because he knew that the Don loved such songs, and it would be a perfect Christmas gift for him. He also had a hunch that the record would sell in the high numbers, not a million, of course. And he had figured out that helping Nino was how the Don wanted his payoff. Nino was, after all, another one of the Don's godchildren. Johnny put his clipboard and yellow pad on the folding chair beside him and got up to stand beside the piano. Hey, Paisan! Nino glanced up and tried to smile. He looked a little sick. Johnny leaned over and rubbed his shoulder blades. Relax, kid. Do a good job today and I'll fix you up with the best and most famous piece of ass in Hollywood. Nino took a gulp of whiskey. Who's that, Lassie? Johnny laughed. No, Deanna Dunn. I guarantee the goods. Nino was impressed but couldn't help saying with pseudo-hopefulness, you can't get Lassie? The orchestra swung into the opening song of the medley. Johnny Fontaine listened intently. Eddie Niels would play all the songs through in their special arrangements. Then would come the first take for the record. As Johnny listened, he made mental notes on exactly how he would handle each phrase, how he would come into each song. He knew his voice wouldn't last long, but Nino would be doing most of the singing. Johnny would be singing under him, except, of course, in the duet-duel song. He would have to save himself for that. He pulled Nino to his feet, and they both stood by their microphones. Nino flubbed the opening. Flubbed it again. His face was beginning to get red with embarrassment. Johnny kidded him. Hey, you stalling for overtime? I don't feel natural without my mandolin. Johnny thought about that for a moment. Hold that glass of booze in your hand. It seemed to do the trick. Nino kept drinking from the glass as he sang, but he was doing fine. Johnny sang easily, not straining, his voice merely dancing around Nino's main melody. There was no emotional satisfaction in this kind of singing, but he was amazed at his own technical skill. Ten years of vocalizing had taught him something. When they came to the duet-duel song that ended the record, Johnny let his voice go, and when they finished, his vocal cords ached. The musicians had been carried away by the last song, a rare thing for these calloused veterans. They hammered down their instruments and stamped their feet in approval as applause. The drummer gave them a ruffle of drums. With stops and conferences, they worked nearly four hours before they quit. Eddie Niels came over to Johnny. You sounded pretty good, kid. Maybe you're ready to do a record. I have a new song that's perfect for you. Johnny shook his head. Come on, Eddie, don't kid me. Besides, in a couple of hours, I'll be too hoarse to even talk. Do you think we'll have to fix up much of the stuff we did today? Nino will have to come into the studio tomorrow. He made some mistakes. 
but he's much better than I thought he would be. As for your stuff, I'll have the sound engineers fix anything I don't like, okay? Okay. When can I hear the pressing? Tomorrow night. Your place? Yeah. Thanks, Eddie. See you tomorrow. He took Nino by the arm and walked out of the studio. They went to his house instead of Jenny's. By this time, it was late afternoon. Nino was still more than half drunk. Johnny told him to get under the shower and then take a snooze. They had to be at a big party at 11 that night. When Nino woke up, Johnny briefed him. This party is a movie star Lonely Hearts Club. These broads tonight are dames you've seen in the movies as glamour queens millions of guys would give their right arms to screw. And the only reason they'll be at the party tonight is to find somebody to shack them up. Do you know why? Because they are hungry for it. They are just a little old. And just like every dame, they want it with a little bit of class. What's the matter with your voice? Every time after I sing a little bit, that happens. I won't be able to sing for a month now. But I'll get over the hoarseness in a couple of days. Tough, huh? Listen, Nino, don't get too drunk tonight. You have to show these Hollywood broads that my paisan buddy ain't weak in the poop. You gotta come across. Remember, some of these dames are very powerful in movies. They can get you work. It doesn't hurt to be charming after you knock off a piece. Nino was already pouring himself a drink. I'm always charming. He drained the glass. Grinning, he asked, No kidding. Can you really get me close to Deanna Dunn? Don't be so anxious. It's not going to be like you think. The Hollywood movie star Lonely Hearts Club, so-called by the young juvenile leads whose attendance was mandatory, met every Friday night at the palatial studio-owned home of Roy McElroy, press agent, or rather public relations counsel, for the Waltz International Film Corporation. Actually, it was McElroy's open house party. The idea had come from the practical brain of Jack Waltz himself. Some of his money-making movie stars were getting older now. Without the help of special lights and genius makeup men, they looked their age. They were having problems. They had also become, to some extent, desensitized physically and mentally. They could no longer fall in love. They could no longer assume the role of hunted women. They had been made too imperious by money, by fame, by their former beauty. Waltz gave his parties so that it would be easier for them to pick up lovers, one-night stands, who, if they had the stuff, could graduate into full-time bed partners and so work their way upward. Since the action sometimes degenerated into brawls or sexual excess that led to trouble with the police, Waltz decided to hold the parties in the house of the public relations counselor, who would be right there to fix things up, pay off newsmen and police officers, and keep everything quiet. For certain virile young male actors on the studio payroll, who had not yet achieved stardom or featured roles, attendance at the Friday night parties was a not always pleasant duty. This was explained by the fact that a new film yet to be released by the studio would be shown at the party. In fact, that was the excuse for the party itself. People would say, let's go over and see what the new picture so-and-so made is like. And so it was put in a professional context. Young female starlets were forbidden to attend the Friday night parties, or rather discouraged. Most of them took the hint. Screenings of the new movies took place at midnight, and Johnny and Nino arrived at 11. Roy McElroy proved to be, at first sight, an enormously likable man, well-groomed, beautifully dressed. He greeted Johnny Fontaine with a surprised cry of delight. What the hell are you doing here? He said with genuine astonishment. Johnny shook his hand. I'm showing my country cousin the sights. Meet Nino. McElroy shook hands with Nino and gazed at him appraisingly. They'll eat him up alive. He led them to the rear patio. The rear patio was really a series of huge rooms whose glass doors had been opened to a garden and pool. There were almost a hundred people milling around, all with drinks in their hands. The patio lighting was artfully arranged to flatter feminine faces and skin. These were women Nino had seen on the darkened movie screens when he had been a teenager. 
They had played their part in his erotic dreams of adolescence. But seeing them now in the flesh was like seeing them in some horrible makeup. Nothing could hide the tiredness of their spirit and their flesh. Time had eroded their godhead. They posed and moved as charmingly as he remembered, but they were like wax fruit. They could not lubricate his glands. Nino took two drinks, wandered to a table where he could stand next to a nest of bottles. Johnny moved with him. They drank together until behind them came the magic voice of Deanna Dunn. Nino, like millions of other men, had that voice imprinted on his brain forever. Deanna Dunn had won two Academy Awards, had been in the biggest movie grocer made in Hollywood. On the screen, she had a feline feminine charm that made her irresistible to all men. But the words she was saying had never been heard on the silver screen. Johnny, you bastard. I had to go to my psychiatrist again because you gave me a one-night stand. How come you never came back for seconds? Johnny kissed her on her proffered cheek. You wore me out for a month. I want you to meet my cousin Nino, a nice strong Italian boy. Maybe he can keep up with you. Deanna Dunn turned to give Nino a cool look. Does he like to watch previews? Johnny laughed. I don't think he's ever had the chance. Why don't you break him in? Nino had to take a big drink when he was alone with Deanna Dunn. He was trying to be nonchalant, but it was hard. Deanna Dunn had the upturned nose, the clean-cut classical features of the Anglo-Saxon beauty. And he knew her so well, he had seen her alone in a bedroom, heartbroken, weeping over her dead flyer husband, who had left her with fatherless children. He had seen her angry, hurt, humiliated, yet with a shining dignity when a caddish Clark Gable had taken advantage of her, then left her for a sex pot. Deanna Dunn never played sex pots in the movies. He had seen her flushed with requited love, writhing in the embrace of the man she adored, and he had seen her die beautifully at least a half dozen times. He had seen her and heard her and dreamed about her, and yet he was not prepared for the first thing she said to him alone. Johnny is one of the few men with balls in this town. The rest are all fags and sick morons who couldn't get it up with a broad if you pumped a truckload of Spanish fly into their scrotums. She took Nino by the hand and led him into a corner of the room, out of traffic and out of competition. Then, still coolly charming, she asked him about himself. He saw through her. He saw that she was playing the role of the rich society girl who was being kind to the stable boy or the chauffeur, but who in the movie would either discourage his amatory interest if the part were played by Spencer Tracy or throw up everything in her mad desire for him if the part were played by Clark Gable. But it didn't matter. He found himself telling her about how he and Johnny had grown up together in New York, about how he and Johnny had sung together on little club dates. He found her marvelously sympathetic and interested. Once, she asked casually, do you know how Johnny made that bastard Jack Waltz give him the part? Nino froze and shook his head. She didn't pursue it. The time had come to see the preview of a new Waltz movie. Deanna Dunn led Nino, her warm hand imprisoning his, to an interior room of the mansion that had no windows, but was furnished with about 50 small two-person couches scattered around in such a way as to give each one a little island of semi-privacy. Nino saw there was a small table beside the couch, and on the table were an ice bowl, glasses, and bottles of liquor, plus a tray of cigarettes. He gave Deanna Dunn a cigarette, lit it, and then mixed them both drinks. They didn't speak to each other. After a few minutes, the lights went out. He had been expecting something outrageous. After all, he'd heard the legends of Hollywood depravity, but he was not quite prepared for Deanna Dunn's voracious plummet on his sexual organ without even a courteous and friendly word of preparation. He kept sipping his drink and watching the movie, but not tasting, not seeing. He was excited in a way he had never been before, but part of it was because this woman servicing him in the dark had been the object of his adolescent dreams. Yet in a way, his masculinity was insulted. 
So when the world-famous Deanna Dunn was sated and had tidied him up, he very coolly fixed her a fresh drink in the darkness and lit her a fresh cigarette and said in the most relaxed voice imaginable, This looks like a pretty good movie. He felt her stiffen beside him on the couch. Could it be she was waiting for some sort of compliment? Nino poured his glass full from the nearest bottle his hand touched in the darkness. The hell with that. She treated him like a goddamn male whore. For some reason now, he felt a cold anger at all these women. They watched the picture for another 15 minutes. He leaned away from her so their bodies did not touch. Finally, she said in a low, harsh whisper, Don't be such a snotty punk. You liked it. You were as big as a house. Nino sipped his drink and said in his natural, offhand manner, That's the way it always is. You should see it when I get excited. She laughed a little and kept quiet for the rest of the picture. Finally, it was over and the lights went on. Nino took a look around. He could see there had been a ball here in the darkness, though oddly enough he hadn't heard a thing. But some of the dames had that hard, shiny, bright-eyed look of women who have just been worked over real good. They sauntered out of the projection room. Deanna Dunn left him immediately to go over and talk to an older man Nino recognized as a famous featured player. Only now, seeing the guy in person, he realized that he was a fag. He sipped his drink thoughtfully. Johnny Fontaine came up beside him. Hi, old buddy. Having a good time? Nino grinned. I don't know. It's different. Now, when I go back to the old neighborhood, I can say Deanna Dunn had me. Johnny laughed. She can be better than that if she invites you home with her. Did she? Nino shook his head. I got too interested in the movie. But this time, Johnny didn't laugh. Get serious, kid. A dame like that can do you a lot of good. And you used to boff anything. Man, sometimes I still get nightmares when I remember those ugly broads you used to bang. Nino waved his glass drunkenly. Yeah, they were ugly, but they were women. Deanna Dunn, in the corner, turned her head to look at them. Nino waved his glass at her in greeting. Johnny Fontaine sighed. Okay, you're just a guinea peasant. Yeah, and I ain't gonna change, Nino said with his charmingly drunken smile. Johnny understood him perfectly. He knew Nino was not as drunk as he pretended. He knew that Nino was only pretending so that he could say things which he felt were too rude to say to his new Hollywood padrone when sober. He put his arm around Nino's neck and said affectionately, You wise guy, bum. You know you got an ironclad contract for a year and you can say and do anything you want and I can't fire you. You can't fire me? No. Then fuck you. For a moment, Johnny was surprised into anger. He saw the careless grin on Nino's face. But in the past few years, he must have gotten smarter, or his own descent from stardom had made him more sensitive. In that moment, he understood Nino, why his boyhood singing partner had never become successful, why he was trying to destroy any chance of success now that Nino was reacting away from all the prices of success, that in some way he felt insulted by everything that was being done for him. Johnny took Nino by the arm and led him out of the house. Nino could barely walk now. Johnny was talking to him soothingly. Okay, kid, you just sing for me. I want to make dough on you. I won't try to run your life. You do whatever you want to do, okay, paisan? All you got to do is sing for me and earn me money now that I can't sing anymore. You got that, old buddy? Nino straightened up. I'll sing for you, Johnny. I'm a better singer than you now. I was always a better singer than you. You know that? Johnny stood there thinking, so that was it. He knew that when his voice was healthy, Nino simply wasn't in the same league with him. Never had been in those years they had sung together as kids. He saw Nino was waiting for an answer, weaving drunkenly in the California moonlight. Fuck you. And they both laughed together like the old days, when they had both been equally young. When Johnny Fontaine got word about the shooting of Don Corleone, he not only worried about his godfather, but also wondered whether the financing for his movie was still alive. 
He had wanted to go to New York to pay his respects to his godfather in the hospital, but he had been told not to get any bad publicity. That was the last thing Don Corleone would want. So he waited. A week later, a messenger came from Tom Hagen. Financing was still on, but for only one picture at a time. Meanwhile, Johnny let Nino go his own way in Hollywood and California, and Nino was doing all right with the young starlets. Sometimes Johnny called him up for a night out together, but never leaned on him. When they talked about the Don getting shot, Nino said to Johnny, You know, once I asked the Don for a job in his organization, he wouldn't give it to me. I was tired of driving a truck, and I wanted to make a lot of dough. You know what he told me? He says every man has only one destiny, and that my destiny was to be an artist, meaning that I couldn't be a racket guy. Johnny thought that one over. The Godfather must be just about the smartest guy in the world. He'd known immediately that Nino could never make a racket guy, would only get himself in trouble or get killed get killed with just one of his wisecracks. But how did the Don know that he would be an artist? Because, goddammit, he figured that someday I'd help Nino. And how did he figure that? Because he would drop the word to me, and I would try to show my gratitude. Of course, he never asked me to do it. He just let me know it would make him happy if I did it. Johnny Fontaine sighed. Now the Godfather was hurt, in trouble, and he could kiss the Academy Award goodbye with Waltz working against him and no help on his side. Only the Don had the personal contacts that could apply pressure, and the Corleone family had other things to think about. Johnny had offered to help. Hagen had given him a curt no. Johnny was busy getting his own picture going. The author of the book he had starred in had finished his new novel and came west on Johnny's invitation to talk it over without agents or studios getting into the act. Johnny was busy getting his own picture going. The author of the book he had starred in had finished his new novel and came west on Johnny's invitation to talk it over without agents or studios getting into the act. The second book was perfect for what Johnny wanted. He wouldn't have to sing, it had a good gutsy story with plenty of dames and sex, and it had a part that Johnny instantly recognized as tailor-made for Nino. The character talked like Nino, acted like him, even looked like him. It was uncanny. All Nino would have to do would be to get up on the screen and be himself. Johnny worked fast. He found that he knew a lot more about production than he thought he did but he hired an executive producer, a man who knew his stuff but had trouble finding work because of the blacklist. Johnny didn't take advantage, but gave the man a fair contract. He told the man, frankly, I expect you to save me more dough this way. So he was surprised when the executive producer came to him and told him the union rep had to be taken care of to the tune of $50,000. There were a lot of problems dealing with overtime and hiring, and the $50,000 would be well spent. Johnny debated whether the executive producer was hustling him, and then said, Send the union guy to me. The union guy was Billy Goff, Johnny said to him. I thought the union stuff was fixed by my friends. I was told not to worry about it at all. Who told you that? You know goddamn well who told me. I won't say his name, but if he tells me something, that's it. Well, things have changed. Your friend is in trouble, and his word don't go this far west anymore. Johnny shrugged. See me in a couple of days, okay? Goff smiled. Sure, Johnny. But calling in New York ain't gonna help you. But calling New York did help. Johnny spoke to Hagen at his office. Hagen told him bluntly not to pay. Your godfather will be sore as hell if you pay that bastard a dime. It'll make the Don lose respect, and right now he can't afford that. Can I talk to the Don? Will you talk to him? I gotta get the picture rolling. Nobody can talk to the Don right now. He's too sick. I'll talk to Sonny about fixing things up, but I'll make the decision on this. Don't pay that smart bastard a dime. If anything changes, I'll let you know. Annoyed, Johnny hung up. Union trouble could add a fortune to making the film and screw up the works generally. 
For a moment, he debated slipping Goff the 50 grand on the quiet. After all, the Don telling him something and Hagen telling him something and giving him orders were two different things. But he decided to wait for a few days. By waiting, he saved $50,000. Two nights later, Goff was found shot to death in his home in Glendale. There was no more talk of union trouble. Johnny was a little shaken by the killing. It was the first time the long arm of the Don had struck such a lethal blow so close to him. As the weeks went by and he became busier and busier with getting the script ready, casting the movie, and working out production details, Johnny Fontaine forgot about his voice, his not being able to sing. Yet, when the Academy Award nominations came out and he found himself one of the candidates, he was depressed because he was not asked to sing one of the songs nominated for the Oscar at the ceremony that would be televised nationally. But he shrugged it off and kept working. He had no hope of winning the Academy Award now that his godfather was no longer able to put pressure on, but getting the nomination had some value. The record he and Nino had cut, the one of Italian songs, was selling much better than anything he had cut lately. But he knew that it was Nino's success more than his. He resigned himself to never being able to again sing professionally. Once a week, he had dinner with Jenny and the kids. No matter how hectic things got, he never skipped that duty. But he didn't sleep with Jenny. Meanwhile, his second wife had finagled a Mexican divorce, and so he was a bachelor again. Oddly enough, he was not that frantic to bang starlets who would have been easy meat. He was too snobbish, really. He was hurt that none of the young stars, the actresses who were still on top, ever gave him a tumble. But it was good to work hard. Most nights he would go home alone, put his old records on the player, have a drink, and hum along with them for a few bars. He had been good. Damn good. He hadn't realized how good he was. Even aside from the special voice, which could have happened to anybody, he was good. He had been a real artist and never knew it, and never knew how much he loved it. He'd ruined his voice with booze and tobacco and broads just when he really knew what it was all about. Sometimes Nino came over for a drink and listened with him, and Johnny would say to him scornfully, You guinea bastard, you never sang like that in your life. And Nino would give him that curiously charming smile and shake his head and say, No, and I never will in a sympathetic voice, as if he knew what Johnny was thinking. Finally, a week before shooting the new picture, the Academy Award night rolled around. Johnny invited Nino to come along, but Nino refused. Johnny said, Buddy, I never asked you a favor, right? Do me a favor tonight and come with me. You're the only guy who really feels sorry for me if I don't win. For one moment, Nino looked startled. Then he said, Sure, old buddy, I can make it. He paused for a moment and said, if you don't win, forget it. Just get as drunk as you can, and I'll take care of you. Hell, I won't even drink myself tonight. How about that for being a buddy? Man, that's somebody. The Academy Award night came, and Nino kept his promise. He came to Johnny's house dead sober, and they left for the presentation theater together. Nino wondered why Johnny hadn't invited any of his girls or his ex-wives to the award dinner, especially Jenny. Didn't he think Jenny would root for him? Nino wished he could have just one drink. It looked like a long, bad night. Nino Valenti found the whole Academy Award affair a bore until the winner of the Best Male Actor was announced. When he heard the words, Johnny Fontaine, he found himself jumping into the air and applauding. Johnny reached out a hand for him to shake, and Nino shook it. He knew his buddy needed human contact with someone he trusted, and Nino felt an enormous sadness that Johnny didn't have anyone better than himself to touch in his moment of glory. What followed was an absolute nightmare. Jack Waltz's picture had swept all the major awards, and so the studio's party was swamped with newspaper people and all the on-the-make hustlers, male and female. 
Nino kept his promise to remain sober, and he tried to watch over Johnny. But the women of the party kept pulling Johnny Fontaine into bedrooms for a little chat, and Johnny kept getting drunker and drunker. Meanwhile, the woman who had won the award for the best actress was suffering the same fate, but loving it more and handling it better. Nino turned her down, the only man at the party to do so. Finally, somebody had a great idea, the public mating of the two winners, everybody else at the party to be spectators in the stands. The actress was stripped down, and the other women started to undress Johnny Fontaine. It was then that Nino, the only sober person there, grabbed the half-clothed Johnny and slung him over his shoulder and fought his way out of the house into their car. As he drove Johnny home, Nino thought that if that was success, he didn't want it. Book Three Chapter 14 The Don was a real man at the age of twelve, short, dark, slender, living in the strange, moorish-looking village of Corleone in Sicily. He had been born Vito Andolini, but when strange men came to kill the son of the man they had murdered, his mother sent the young boy to America to stay with friends. And in the new land, he changed his name to Corleone to preserve some tie with his native village. It was one of the few gestures of sentiment he was ever to make. In Sicily at the turn of the century, the Mafia was the second government, far more powerful than the official one in Rome. Vito Corleone's father became involved in a feud with another villager who took his case to the Mafia. The father refused to knuckle under and in a public quarrel killed the local Mafia chief. A week later, he himself was found dead, his body torn apart by Lupara blasts. A month after the funeral, Mafia gunmen came inquiring after the young boy, Vito. They had decided that he was too close to manhood, that he might try to avenge the death of his father in the years to come. The twelve-year-old Vito was hidden by relatives and shipped to America. There he was boarded with the Abandandos, whose son Genko was later to become consigliere to his Don. Young Vito went to work in the Abandando grocery store on Ninth Avenue in New York's Hell's Kitchen. At the age of eighteen, Vito married an Italian girl freshly arrived from Sicily, a girl of only sixteen, but a skilled cook, a good housewife. They settled down in a tenement on 10th Avenue near 35th Street, only a few blocks from where Vito worked, and two years later were blessed with their first child, Santino, called by all his friends Sonny because of his devotion to his father. In the neighborhood lived a man called Fanucci. He was a heavy-set, fierce-looking Italian who wore expensive light-colored suits and a cream-colored fedora. This man was reputed to be of the Black Hand, an offshoot of the Mafia which extorted money from families and storekeepers by threat of physical violence. However, since most of the inhabitants of the neighborhood were violent themselves, Fanucci's threats of bodily harm were effective only with elderly couples without male children to defend them. Some of the storekeepers paid him trifling sums as a matter of convenience. However, Fanucci was also a scavenger on fellow criminals, people who illegally sold Italian lottery or ran gambling games in their homes. The Abandando grocery gave him a small tribute, this despite the protests of young Jenko, who told his father he would settle the Fanucci hash. His father forbade him. Vito Corleone observed all this without feeling in any way involved. One day, Fanucci was set upon by three young men who cut his throat from ear to ear, not deeply enough to kill him, but enough to frighten him and make him bleed a great deal. Vito saw Fanucci fleeing from his punishers, the circular slash flowing red. What he never forgot was Fanucci holding the cream-colored fedora under his chin to catch the dripping blood as he ran, as if he did not want his suit soiled or did not want to leave a shameful trail of carmine. But this attack proved a blessing in disguise for Fanucci. 
The three young men were not murderers, merely tough young boys determined to teach him a lesson and stop him from scavenging. Fanucci proved himself a murderer. A few weeks later, the knife wielder was shot to death, and the families of the two other young men paid an indemnity to Fanucci to make him forswear his vengeance. After that, the tributes became higher, and Fanucci became a partner in the neighborhood gambling games. As for Vito Corleone, it was none of his affair. He forgot about it immediately. During World War I, when imported olive oil became scarce, Fanucci acquired a part interest in the Abandando grocery store by supplying it not only with oil, but imported Italian salami, hams, and cheeses. He then moved a nephew into the store, and Vito Corleone found himself out of a job. By this time, the second child, Federico, had arrived, and Vito Corleone had four mouths to feed. Up to this time, he had been a quiet, very contained young man who kept his thoughts to himself. The son of the grocery store owner, young Genco Abandando, was his closest friend, and to the surprise of both of them, Vito reproached his friend for his father's deed. Genco, flushed with shame, vowed to Vito that he would not have to worry about food that he, Jenko, would steal food from the grocery to supply his friend's needs. This offer, though, was sternly refused by Vito as too shameful, a son stealing from his father. The young Vito, however, felt a cold anger for the dreaded Fanucci. He never showed this anger in any way, but bided his time. He worked in the railroad for a few months, and then, when the war ended, work became slow and he could earn only a few days' pay a month. Also, most of the foremen were Irish and American and abused the workmen in the foulest language, which Vito always bore stone-faced as if he did not comprehend, though he understood English very well, despite his accent. One evening, as Vito was having supper with his family, there was a knock on the window that led to the open air shaft that separated them from the next building. When Vito pulled aside the curtain, he saw to his astonishment one of the young men in the neighborhood, Peter Clemenza, leaning out from a window on the other side of the shaft. He was extending a white-sheeted bundle. Clemenza said, Hey, Paisan, hold these for me until I ask for them. Hurry up. Automatically, Vito reached over the empty space of the air shaft and took the bundle. Clemenza's face was strained and urgent. He was in some sort of trouble. And Vito's helping action was instinctive. But when he untied the bundle in his kitchen, there were five oily guns staining the white cloth. He put them in his bedroom closet and waited. He learned that Clemenza had been taken away by the police. They must have been knocking on his door when he handed the guns over the air shaft. Vito never said a word to anyone, and of course his terrified wife dared not open her lips, even in gossip, for fear her own husband would be sent to prison. Two days later, Peter Clemenza reappeared in the neighborhood and asked Vito casually, Do you have my goods still? Vito nodded. He was in the habit of talking little. Clemenza came up to his tenement flat and was given a glass of wine while Vito dug the bundle out of his bedroom closet. Clemenza drank his wine, his heavy, good-natured face alertly watching Vito. Did you look inside? Vito, his face impassive, shook his head. I'm not interested in things that don't concern me. They drank wine together the rest of the evening. They found each other congenial. Clemenza was a storyteller. Vito Corleone was a listener to storytellers. They became casual friends. A few days later, Clemenza asked the wife of Vito Corleone if she would like a fine rug for her living room floor. He took Vito with him to help carry the rug. Clemenza led Vito to an apartment house with two marble pillars and a white marble stoop. He used a key to open the door, and they were inside a plush apartment. Clemenza grunted, Go on the other side of the room and help me roll it up. The rug was a rich red wool. Vito Corleone was astonished by Clemenza's generosity. Together they rolled the rug into a pile, and Clemenza took one end while Vito took the other. 
They lifted it and started carrying it toward the door. At that moment, the apartment bell rang. Clemenza immediately dropped the rug and strode to the window. He pulled the drape aside slightly, and what he saw made him draw a gun from inside his jacket. It was only at that moment the astonished Vito Corleone realized that they were stealing the rug from some stranger's apartment. The apartment bell rang again. Vito went up alongside Clemenza so that he, too, could see what was happening. At the door was a uniformed policeman. As they watched, the policeman gave the doorbell a final push, then shrugged and walked away down the marble steps and down the street. Clemenza grunted in a satisfied way. Come on, let's go. He picked up his end of the rug, and Vito picked up the other end. The policeman had barely turned the corner before they were edging out the heavy oaken door and into the street with the rug between them. Thirty minutes later, they were cutting the rug to fit the living room of Vito Corleone's apartment. They had enough left over for the bedroom. Clemenza was an expert workman, and from the pockets of his wide, ill-fitting jacket, even then he liked to wear loose clothes, though he was not so fat, he had the necessary carpet-cutting tools. Time went on. Things did not improve. The Corleone family could not eat the beautiful rug. Very well, there was no work. His wife and children must starve. Vito took some parcels of food from his friend Genko while he thought things out. Finally, he was approached by Clemenza and Tessio, another young tough of the neighborhood. They were men who thought well of him, the way he carried himself, and they knew he was desperate. They proposed to him that he become one of their gang, which specialized in hijacking trucks of silk dresses after those trucks were loaded up at the factory on 31st Street. There was no risk. The truck drivers were sensible working men who, at the sight of a gun, flopped on the sidewalk like angels while the hijackers drove the truck away to be unloaded at a friend's warehouse. Some of the merchandise would be sold to an Italian wholesaler. Part of the loot would be sold door-to-door -door in the Italian neighborhoods, Arthur Avenue in the Bronx, Mulberry Street, and the Chelsea District in Manhattan all to poor Italian families looking for a bargain, whose daughters could never be able to afford such fine apparel. Clemenza and Tessio needed Vito to drive, since they knew he chauffeured the Abandando grocery store delivery truck. In 1919, skilled automobile drivers were at a premium. Against his better judgment, Vito Corleone accepted their offer. The clinching argument was that he would clear at least $1,000 for his share of the job. But his young companions struck him as rash, the planning of the job haphazard, the distribution of the loot foolhardy. Their whole approach was too careless for his taste. But he thought them of good, sound character. Peter Clemenza, already burly, inspired a certain trust, and the lean, saturnine Tessio inspired confidence. The job itself went off without a hitch. Vito Corleone felt no fear, much to his astonishment, when his two comrades flashed guns and made the driver get out of the silk truck. He was also impressed with the coolness of Clemenza and Tessio. They didn't get excited, but joked with the driver, told him if he was a good lad, they'd send his wife a few dresses. Because Vito thought it stupid to peddle dresses himself, and so gave his whole share of stock to the fence, he made only $700, but this was a considerable sum of money in 1919. The next day on the street, Vito Corleone was stopped by the cream-suited, white-fedorid Fanucci. Fanucci was a brutal-looking man, and he had done nothing to disguise the circular scar that stretched in a white semicircle from ear to ear, looping under his chin. He had heavy, black brows and coarse features, which, when he smiled, were in some odd way amiable. He spoke with a very thick Sicilian accent. He said to Vito, Ah, young fellow, people tell me you're rich, you and your two friends. But don't you think you've treated me a little shabbily? 
After all, this is my neighborhood, and uh, you should let me wet my beak. He used the Sicilian phrase of the mafia, farivagnare a pizzu. Pizzu means the beak of any small bird, such as a canary. The phrase itself was a demand for part of the loot. As was his habit, Vito Corleone did not answer. He understood the implication immediately and was waiting for a definite demand. Fanucci smiled at him, showing gold teeth and stretching his noose-like scar tight around his face. He mopped his face with a handkerchief and unbuttoned his jacket for a moment as if to cool himself, but really to show the gun he carried stuck in the waistband of his comfortably wide trousers. Then he sighed and said, Give me five hundred dollars and I'll forget the insult. After all, young people don't know the courtesies to a man like myself. Vito Corleone smiled at him, and even as a young man, still unblooded, there was something so chilling in his smile that Fanucci hesitated a moment before going on. Otherwise, the police will come to see you. Your wife and children will be shamed and destitute. Of course, if my information as to your gains is incorrect, I'll dip my beak just a little. But no less than three hundred dollars. And don't try to deceive me. For the first time, Vito Corleone spoke. His voice was reasonable, showed no anger. It was courteous, as befitted a young man speaking to an older man of Fenucci's eminence. He said softly, My two friends have my share of the money. I'll have to speak to them. Fenucci was reassured. You can tell your two friends that I expect them to let me wet my beak in the same manner. Don't be afraid to tell them. Clemence and I know each other well. He understands these things. Let yourself be guided by him. He has more experience in these matters. Vito Corleone shrugged. He tried to look a little embarrassed. Of course. You understand this is all new to me. Thank you for speaking to me as a godfather. Fanucci was impressed. <laughs> You're a good fellow. He took Vito's hand and clasped it in both of his hairy ones. You have respect. A fine thing, the young. Next time, speak to me first, eh? Perhaps I can help you in your plans. In later years, Vito Corleone understood that what had made him act in such a perfect, tactical way with Fanucci was the death of his own hot-tempered father, who had been killed by the Mafia in Sicily. But at that time, all he felt was an icy rage that this man planned to rob him of the money he had risked his life and freedom to earn. He had not been afraid. Indeed, he thought at that moment that Fanucci was a crazy fool. From what he had seen of Clemenza, that burly Sicilian would sooner give up his life than a penny of his loot. After all, Clemenza had been ready to kill a policeman merely to steal a rug, and the slender Tessio had the deadly air of a viper. But later that night, in Clemenza's tenement apartment across the air shaft, Vito Corleone received another lesson in the education he had just begun. Clemenza cursed, Tessio scowled, but then both men started talking about whether Fanucci would be satisfied with $200. Tessio thought he might. Clemenza was positive. Now, that scarface bastard must have found out what we made from the wholesale who bought the dresses. Fanucci won't take a dime less than $300. We'll have to pay. Vito was astonished, but was careful not to show his astonishment. Why do we have to pay him? What can he do to the three of us? We're stronger than him, we have guns. Why do we have to hand over the money we earn? Fanucci has friends, real brutes. He has connections with the police. He'd like us to tell him our plans because he could set us up for the cops and earn their gratitude. And they would owe him a favor. That's how he operates. 
And he has a license from Maranzala himself to work this neighborhood. Maranzala was a gangster often in the newspapers, reputed to be the leader of a criminal ring specializing in extortion, gambling, and armed robbery. Clemenza served wine that he had made himself. His wife, after putting a plate of salami, olives, and a loaf of Italian bread on a table, went down to sit with her women cronies in front of the building, carrying her chair with her. She was a young Italian girl, only a few years in the country, and did not yet understand English. Vito Corleone sat with his two friends and drank wine. He had never used his intelligence before as he was using it now. He was surprised at how clearly he could think. He recalled everything he knew about Fanucci. He remembered the day the man had had his throat cut and had run down the street holding his fedora under his chin to catch the dripping blood. He remembered the murder of the man who had wielded the knife and the other two having their sentences removed by paying an indemnity. And suddenly he was sure that Fanucci had no great connections, could not possibly have, not a man who informed to the police, not a man who allowed his vengeance to be bought off. A real mafioso chief would have had the other two men killed also. No, Fanucci had got lucky and killed one man, but had known he could not kill the other two after they were alerted, and so he had allowed himself to be paid. It was the personal, brutal force of the man that allowed him to levy tribute on the shopkeepers, the gambling games that ran in the tenement apartments. But Vito Corleone knew of at least one gambling game that had never paid Fanucci tributes, and nothing had ever happened to the man running it. And so it was Fanucci alone, or Fanucci with some gunmen hired for special jobs on a strictly cash basis, which left Vito Corleone with another decision, the course his own life must take. From this experience came his oft-repeated belief that every man has but one destiny. On that night, he could have paid Fanucci the tribute and have become again a grocery clerk with perhaps his own grocery store in the years to come. But destiny had decided that he was to become a Don and had brought Fanucci to him to set him on his destined path. When they finished the bottle of wine, Vito said cautiously to Clemenza and Tessio, If you like, why not give me $200 each to pay Fanucci? I guarantee he will accept that amount from me. Then leave everything in my hands. I'll settle this problem to your satisfaction. At once, Clemenza's eyes gleamed with suspicion. Vito said to him coldly, I never lie to people I have accepted as my friends. Speak to Fanucci yourself tomorrow. Let him ask you for the money, but don't pay him, and don't in any way quarrel with him. Tell him you have to get the money and will give it to me to give to him. Let him understand that you are willing to pay what he asks. Don't bargain. I'll quarrel over the price with him. There's no point making him angry with us if he's as dangerous a man as you say he is. They left it at that. The next day, Clemenza spoke with Fanucci to make sure that Vito was not making up the story. Then, Clemenza came to Vito's apartment and gave him the $200. He peered at Vito Corleone and said, Fanucci told me nothing below $300. How will you make him take less? Surely that's no concern of yours. Just remember that I have done you a service. Tessio came later. Tessio was more reserved than Clemenza, sharper, more clever, but with less force. He sensed something amiss, something not quite right. He was a little worried. He said to Vito Corleone, Watch yourself with that bastard of a black hand. He's tricky as a priest. You want me to be here when you hand him the money, as a witness? Vito Corleone shook his head. He didn't even bother to answer. He merely said to Tessio, Tell Fanucci I'll pay him the money here, in my house, at nine o'clock tonight. I'll have to give him a glass of wine and talk, reason with him to take the lesser sum. Tessio shook his head. 
You won't have much luck. Fanucci never retreats. I'll reason with him. It was to become a famous phrase in the years to come. It was to become the warning rattle before a deadly strike. When he became a Don and asked opponents to sit down and reason with him, they understood it was the last chance to resolve an affair without bloodshed and murder. Vito Corleone told his wife to take the two children, Sonny and Fredo, down into the street after supper and on no account to let them come up to the house until he gave her permission. She was to sit on guard at the tenement door. He had some private business with Fanucci that could not be interrupted. He saw the look of fear on her face and was angry. Do you think you've married a fool? She didn't answer. She did not answer because she was frightened, not of Fanucci now, but of her husband. He was changing visibly before her eyes, hour by hour, into a man who radiated some dangerous force. He had always been quiet, speaking little, but always gentle, always reasonable, which was extraordinary in a young Sicilian male. What she was seeing was the shedding of his protective coloration of a harmless nobody, now that he was ready to start on his destiny. He had started late, he was 25 years old, but he was to start with a flourish. Vito Corleone had decided to murder Fanucci. By doing so, he would have an extra $700 in his bankroll. The $300 he himself would have to pay the Black Hand terrorist, and the $200 from Tessio, and the $200 from Clemenza. If he did not kill Fanucci, he would have to pay the man $700 cold cash. Fanucci alive was not worth $700 to him. He would not pay $700 to keep Fanucci alive. If Fanucci needed $700 for an operation to save his life, he would not give Fanucci $700 for the surgeon. He owed Fanucci no personal debt of gratitude. They were not blood relatives. He did not love Fanucci. Why for, then, should he give Fanucci $700? And it followed inevitably that since Fanucci wished to take $700 from him by force, why should he not kill Fanucci? Surely the world could do without such a person. There were, of course, some practical reasons. Fanucci might indeed have powerful friends who would seek vengeance. Fanucci himself was a dangerous man, not so easily killed. There were the police and the electric chair. But Vito Corleone had lived under a sentence of death since the murder of his father. As a boy of twelve, he had fled his executioners and crossed the ocean into a strange land, taking a strange name. And years of quiet observation had convinced him that he had more intelligence and more courage than other men though he had never had the opportunity to use that intelligence and courage. And yet he hesitated before taking the first step toward his destiny. He even packed the $700 in a single fold of bills and put the money in a convenient side pocket of his trousers. But he put the money in the left side of his trousers. In the right-hand pocket, he put the gun Clemenza had given him to use in the hijacking of the silk truck. Finucci came promptly at nine in the evening. Vito Corleone set out a jug of homemade wine that Clemenza had given him. Finucci put his white fedora on the table beside the jug of wine. He unloosened his broad, multi-flowered tie, its tomato stains camouflaged by the bright patterns. The summer night was hot, the gaslight feeble. It was very quiet in the apartment. But Vito Corleone was icy. To show his good faith, he handed over the roll of bills and watched carefully as Fanucci, after counting it, took out a wide leather wallet and stuffed the money inside. Fanucci sipped his glass of wine. You still owe me two hundred dollars. His heavy-browed face was expressionless. Vito Corleone said in his cool, reasonable voice, I'm a little short. I've been out of work. Let me owe you the money for a few weeks. This was a permissible gambit. Fanucci had the bulk of the money and would wait. 
He might even be persuaded to take nothing more or to wait a little longer. He chuckled over his wine. Ha! <laughs> You're a sharp young fellow. How is it I've never noticed you before? You're too quiet a chap for your own interest. I could find some work for you to do that would be very profitable. Vito Corleone showed his interest with a polite nod and filled up the man's glass from the purple jug. But Fanucci thought better of what he was going to say and rose from his chair and shook Vito's hand. Good night, young fellow. No hard feelings, eh? If I can ever do you a service, let me know. You've done a good job for yourself tonight. Vito let Fanucci go down the stairs and out the building. The street was thronged with witnesses to show that he had left the Corleone home safely. Vito watched from the window. He saw Fanucci turn the corner toward 11th Avenue and knew he was headed toward his apartment, probably to put away his loot before coming out on the streets again. Perhaps to put away his gun. Vito Corleone left his apartment and ran up the stairs to the roof. He traveled over the square block of roofs and descended down the steps of an empty loft building fire escape that left him in the backyard. He kicked the back door open and went through the front door. Across the street was Fanucci's tenement apartment house. The village of tenements extended only as far west as 10th Avenue. 11th Avenue was mostly warehouses and lofts rented by firms who shipped by New York Central Railroad and wanted access to the freight yards that honeycombed the area from 11th Avenue to the Hudson River. Fanucci's apartment house was one of the few left standing in this wilderness and was occupied mostly by bachelor trainmen, yard workers, and the cheapest prostitutes. These people did not sit in the street and gossip like honest Italians. They sat in beer taverns, guzzling their pay. So Vito Corleone found it an easy matter to slip across the deserted 11th Avenue and into the vestibule of Fanucci's apartment house. There, he drew the gun he had never fired and waited for Fanucci. He watched through the glass door of the vestibule, knowing Fanucci would come down 10th Avenue. Clemenza had showed him the safety on the gun, and he had triggered it empty. But as a young boy in Sicily, at the early age of nine, he had often gone hunting with his father, had often fired the heavy shotgun called the Lupara. It was his skill with the Lupara, even as a small boy, that had brought the sentence of death upon him by his father's murderers. Now, waiting in the darkened hallway, he saw the white blob of Fanucci crossing the street toward the doorway. Vito stepped back, shoulders pressed against the inner door that led to the stairs. He held his gun out to fire. His extended hand was only two paces from the outside door. The door swung in. Fanucci, white, broad, smelly, filled the square of light. Vito Corleone fired. The open door let some of the sound escape into the street. The rest of the gun's explosion shook the building. Fanucci was holding on to the sides of the door, trying to stand erect, trying to reach for his gun. The force of his struggle had torn the buttons off his jacket and made it swing loose. His gun was exposed, but so was a spidery vein of red on the white shirt front of his stomach. Very carefully, as if he were plunging a needle into a vein, Vito Corleone fired his second bullet into that red web. Fanucci fell to his knees, propping the door open. He let out a terrible groan, the groan of a man in great physical distress that was almost comical. He kept giving these groans. Vito remembered hearing at least three of them before he put the gun against Fanucci's sweaty, suety cheek and fired into his brain. No more than five seconds had passed when Fanucci slumped into death, jamming the door open with his body. Very carefully, Vito took the wide wallet out of the dead man's jacket pocket and put it inside his shirt. Then he walked across the street into the loft building, threw that into the yard, and climbed the fire escape to the roof. From there, he surveyed the street. 
Panucci's body was still lying in the doorway, but there was no sign of any other person. Two windows had gone up in the tenement, and he could see dark heads poked out, but since he could not see their features, they had certainly not seen his. And such men would not give information to the police. Fanucci might lie there until dawn, or until a patrolman making the rounds stumbled on his body. No person in that house would deliberately expose himself to police suspicion or questioning. They would lock their doors and pretend they had heard nothing. He could take his time. He traveled over the rooftops to his own roof door and down to his own flat. He unlocked the door, went inside, and then locked the door behind him. He rifled the dead man's wallet. Besides the $700 he had given Fanucci, there were only some singles and a $5 note. Tucked inside the flap was an old $5 gold piece, probably a luck token. If Fanucci was a rich gangster, he certainly did not carry his wealth with him. This confirmed some of Vito's suspicions. He knew he had to get rid of the wallet and the gun, knowing enough even then that he must leave the gold piece in the wallet. He went up on the roof again and traveled over a few ledges. He threw the wallet down one air shaft, and then he emptied the gun of bullets and smashed its barrel against the roof ledge. The barrel wouldn't break. He reversed it in his hand and smashed the butt against the side of a chimney. The butt split into two halves. He smashed it again, and the pistol broke into barrel and handle, two separate pieces. He used a separate air shaft for each. They made no sound when they struck the earth five stories below, but sank into the soft hill of garbage that had accumulated there. In the morning, more garbage would be thrown out of the windows and, with luck, would cover everything. Vito returned to his apartment. He was trembling a little, but was absolutely under control. He changed his clothes, and, fearful that some blood might have splattered on them, he threw them into a metal tub his wife used for washing. He took lye and heavy brown laundry soap to soak the clothes and scrubbed them with the metal washboard beneath the sink. Then he scoured tub and sink with lye and soap. He found a bundle of newly washed clothes in the corner of the bedroom and mingled his own clothes with these. Then he put on a fresh shirt and trousers and went down to join his wife and children and neighbors in front of the tenement. All these precautions proved to be unnecessary. The police, after discovering the dead body at dawn, never questioned Vito Corleone. Indeed, he was astonished that they never learned about Fanucci's visit to his home on the night he was shot to death. He had counted on that for an alibi, Fanucci leaving the tenement alive. He only learned later that the police had been delighted with the murder of Fanucci and not too anxious to pursue his killers. They had assumed it was another gang execution and had questioned hoodlums with records and the rackets and a history of strong arm. Since Vito had never been in trouble, he never came into the picture. But if he had outwitted the police, his partners were another matter. Peter Clemenza and Tessio avoided him for the next week, for the next two weeks. Then they came to call on him one evening. They came with obvious respect. Vito Corleone greeted them with impassive courtesy and served them wine. Clemenza spoke first. Nobody's collecting from the store owners on Ninth Avenue. Nobody's collecting from the card games and the gambling in the neighborhood. Vito Corleone gazed at both men steadily, but did not reply. Tessio spoke. We could take over Fanucci's customers. They would pay us. Vito Corleone shrugged. Why come to me? I have no interest in such things. Clemenza laughed. Even in his youth, before growing his enormous belly, he had a fat man's laugh. He said now to Vito Corleone, <laughs> How about that gun I gave you for the truck job? Since you won't need it anymore, you can give it back to me. Very slowly and deliberately, Vito Corleone took a wad of bills out of his side pocket and peeled off five tens. Here, I'll pay you. I threw the gun away after the truck job. He smiled at the two men. At that time, Vito Corleone did not know the effect of this smile. It was chilling 
because it attempted no menace. He smiled as if it was some private joke only he himself could appreciate. But since he smiled in that fashion only in affairs that were lethal, and since the joke was not really private, and since his eyes did not smile, and since his outward character was usually so reasonable and quiet, the sudden unmasking of his true self was frightening. Clemenza shook his head. I don't want the money. Vito pocketed the bills. He waited. They all understood each other. They knew he had killed Fanucci, and though they never spoke about it to anyone, the whole neighborhood within a few weeks also knew. Vito Corleone was treated as a man of respect by everyone, but he made no attempt to take over the Fanucci rackets and tributes. What followed then was inevitable. One night, Vito's wife brought a neighbor, a widow, to the flat. The woman was Italian and of unimpeachable character. She worked hard to keep a home for her fatherless children. Her 16-year-old son brought home his pay envelope sealed to hand over to her in the old country style. Her 17-year-old daughter, a dressmaker, did the same. The whole family sewed buttons on cards at night at slave labor peace rates. The woman's name was Signora Colombo. Vito Corleone's wife said, The Signora has a favor to ask of you. She's having some trouble. Vito Corleone expected to be asked for money, which he was ready to give. But it seemed that Mrs. Colombo owned a dog, which her youngest son adored. The landlord had received complaints on the dog barking at night and had told Mrs. Colombo to get rid of it. She had pretended to do so. The landlord had found out that she had deceived him and had ordered her to vacate her apartment. She had promised this time to truly get rid of the dog, and she had done so. But the landlord was so angry that he would not revoke his order. She had to get out, or the police would be summoned to put her out. And her poor little boy had cried so when they had given the dog away to relatives who lived in Long Island. All for nothing, they would lose their home. Vito Corleone asked her gently, Why do you ask me to help you? Mrs. Colombo nodded toward his wife. She told me to ask you. He was surprised. His wife had never questioned him about the clothes he had washed the night he had murdered Fanucci. He had never asked him where all the money came from when he was not working. Even now, her face was impassive. Vito said to Mrs. Colombo, I can give you some money to help you move. Is that what you want? The woman shook her head. She was in tears. All my friends are here. All the girls I grew up with in Italy. How can I move to another neighborhood with strangers? I want you to speak to the landlord to let me stay. Vito nodded. It's done, then. You won't have to move. I'll speak to him tomorrow morning. His wife gave him a smile, which he did not acknowledge, but he felt pleased. Mrs. Colombo looked a little uncertain. You're sure he'll say yes? The landlord? Signor Roberto? Of course he will. He's a good-hearted fellow. Once I explain how things are with you, he'll take pity on your misfortunes. Now, don't let it trouble you anymore. Don't get so upset. Guard your health for the sake of your children. The landlord, Mr. Roberto, came to the neighborhood every day to check on the row of five tenements that he owned. He was a padrone, a man who sold Italian laborers just off the boat to the big corporations. With his profits, he had bought the tenements one by one. An educated man from the north of Italy, he felt only contempt for these illiterate southerners from Sicily and Naples who swarmed like vermin through his buildings, who threw garbage down the air shafts, who let cockroaches and rats eat away his walls without lifting a hand to preserve his property. He was not a bad man, he was a good husband and father, but constant worry about his investments, about the money he earned, about the inevitable expenses that came with being a man of property, had worn his nerves to a frazzle, so that he was in a constant state of irritation. 
When Vito Corleone stopped him on the street to ask for a word, Mr. Roberto was brusque, not rude, since any one of these Southerners might stick a knife into you if you rubbed the wrong way, though this young man looked like a quiet fellow. Vito Corleone said, Signor Roberto, the friend of my wife, a poor widow with no man to protect her, tells me that for some reason she has been ordered to move from her apartment in your building. She is in despair. She has no money. She has no friends except those that live here. I told her that I would speak to you, that you are a reasonable man who acted out of some misunderstanding. She has gotten rid of the animal that caused all the trouble, so why shouldn't she stay? As one Italian to another, I ask you the favor. Signor Roberto studied the young man in front of him. He saw a man of medium stature, but strongly built, a peasant, but not a bandit, though he so laughingly dared to call himself an Italian. Roberto shrugged. I have already rented the apartment to another family for higher rent. I cannot disappoint them for the sake of your friend. Vito Corleone nodded in agreeable understanding. How much more a month? Five dollars. This was a lie. The railway flat, four dark rooms, rented for twelve dollars a month to the widow, and he had not been able to get more than that from the new tenant. Vito Corleone took a roll of bills out of his pocket and peeled off three tens. Here. Here is the six months' increase in advance. You needn't speak to her about it. She's a proud woman. See me again in another six months. But of course you let her keep her dog. Like hell. And who the hell are you to give him your orders? Watch your manners. You'll be out on your Sicilian ass in the street there. Vito Corleone raised his hands in surprise. I'm asking you a favor, only that. One never knows when one might need a friend, isn't that true? Here, take this money as a sign of my goodwill and make your own decision. I wouldn't dare to quarrel with it. He thrust the money into Mr. Roberta's hand. Do me this little favor. Just take the money and think things over. Tomorrow morning, if you want to give me the money back, by all means do so. If you want the woman out of your house, how can I stop you? It's your property, after all. If you don't want the dog in there, I can understand. I dislike animals myself. He patted Mr. Roberto on the shoulder. Do me this service, eh? I won't forget it. Ask your friends in the neighborhood about me. They'll tell you I'm a man who believes in showing his gratitude. But of course... Mr. Roberto had already begun to understand. That evening, he made inquiries about Vito Corleone. He did not wait until the next morning. He knocked on the Corleone door that very night, apologizing for the lateness of the hour, and accepted a glass of wine from Signora Corleone. He assured Vito Corleone that it had all been a dreadful misunderstanding, that of course Signora Colombo could remain in the flat, of course she could keep her dog. Who were those miserable tenants to complain about noise from a poor animal when they paid such a low rent? At the finish, he threw the $30 Vito Corleone had given him on the table and said, in the most sincere fashion, Your good heart in helping this poor widow has shamed me, and I wish to show that I too have some Christian charity. Her rent will remain what it was. All concerned played this comedy prettily. Vito poured wine, called for cakes, wrung Mr. Roberto's hand, and praised his warm heart. Mr. Roberto sighed and said that having made the acquaintance of such a man as Vito Corleone restored his faith in human nature. Finally, they tore themselves away from each other. Mr. Roberto, his bones turned to jelly with fear at his narrow escape, caught the streetcar to his home in the Bronx and took to his bed. He did not reappear in his tenements for three days. Vito Corleone was now a man of respect in the neighborhood. 
He was reputed to be a member of the Mafia of Sicily. One day, a man who ran card games in a furnished room came to him and voluntarily paid him $20 each week for his friendship. He had only to visit the game once or twice a week to let the players understand they were under his protection. Store owners who had problems with young hoodlums asked him to intercede. He did so and was properly rewarded. Soon, he had the enormous income for that time and place of $100 a week. Since Clemenza and Tessio were his friends, his allies, he had to give them each part of the money. But this he did without being asked. Finally, he decided to go into the olive oil importing business with his boyhood chum, Genco Abandando. Genco would handle the business, the importing of the olive oil from Italy, the buying at the proper price, the storing in his father's warehouse. Genco had the experience for this part of the business. Clemenza and Tessio would be the salesmen. They would go to every Italian grocery store in Manhattan, then Brooklyn, then the Bronx, to persuade store owners to stock Genco Pura olive oil. With typical modesty, Vito Corleone refused to name the brand after himself. Vito, of course, would be the head of the firm since he was supplying most of the capital. He also would be called in on special cases, where store owners resisted the sales talks of Clemenza and Tessio. Then, Vito Corleone would use his own formidable powers of persuasion. For the next few years, Vito Corleone lived that completely satisfying life of a small businessman wholly devoted to building up his commercial enterprise in a dynamic, expanding economy. He was a devoted father and husband, but so busy he could spare his family little of his time. As Gen Copura olive oil grew to become the best-selling imported Italian oil in America, his organization mushroomed. Like any good businessman, he came to understand the benefits of undercutting his rivals in price barring them from distribution outlets by persuading store owners to stock less of their brands. Like any good businessman, he aimed at holding a monopoly by forcing his rivals to abandon the field or by merging with his own company. However, since he had started off relatively helpless economically, since he did not believe in advertising, relying on word of mouth, and since, if truth be told, his olive oil was no better than his competitors, he could not use the common strangleholds of legitimate businessmen. He had to rely on the force of his own personality and his reputation as a man of respect. Even as a young man, Vito Corleone became known as a man of reasonableness. He never uttered a threat. He always used logic that proved to be irresistible. He always made certain that the other fellow got his share of profit. Nobody lost. He did this, of course, by obvious means. Like many businessmen of genius, he learned that free competition was wasteful, monopoly efficient. And so, he simply set about achieving that efficient monopoly. There were some oil wholesalers in Brooklyn, men of fiery temper, headstrong, not amenable to reason, who refused to see, to recognize, the vision of Vito Corleone, even after he had explained everything to them with the utmost patience and detail. With these men, Vito Corleone threw up his hands in despair and sent Tessio to Brooklyn to set up a headquarters and solve the problem. Warehouses were burned, truckloads of olive green oil were dumped to form lakes in the cobbled waterfront streets. One rash man, an arrogant Milanese, with more faith in the police than a saint has in Christ, actually went to the authorities with a complaint against his fellow Italians, breaking the ten-century-old law of omerta. But before the matter could progress any further, the wholesaler disappeared, never to be seen again, leaving behind, deserted, his devoted wife and three children, who, God be thanked, were fully grown and capable of taking over his business and coming to terms with the Genkopura Oil Company. But great men are not born great. They grow great. And so it was with Vito Corleone. 
when prohibition came to pass and alcohol forbidden to be sold, Vito Corleone made the final step from a quite ordinary, somewhat ruthless businessman to a great don in the world of criminal enterprise. It did not happen in a day, it did not happen in a year, but by the end of the prohibition period and the start of the Great Depression, Vito Corleone had become the godfather, the don, Don Corleone. It started casually enough. By this time, the Genco Pura Oil Company had a fleet of six delivery trucks. Through Clemenza, Vito Corleone was approached by a group of Italian bootleggers who smuggled alcohol and whiskey in from Canada. They needed trucks and deliverymen to distribute their product over New York City. They needed deliverymen who were reliable, discreet, and of a certain determination and force. They were willing to pay Vito Corleone for his trucks and for his men. The fee was so enormous that Vito Corleone cut back drastically on his oil business to use the trucks almost exclusively for the service of the bootlegger smugglers. This, despite the fact that these gentlemen had accompanied their offer with a silky threat. But even then, Vito Corleone was so mature a man that he did not take insult at a threat or become angry and refuse a profitable offer because of it. He evaluated the threat, found it lacking in conviction, and lowered his opinion of his new partners because they'd been so stupid to use threats where none were needed. This was useful information to be pondered at its proper time. Again, he prospered, but more important, he acquired knowledge and contacts and experience, and he piled up good deeds as a banker piles up securities. For in the following years, it became clear that Vito Corleone was not only a man of talent, but in his way, a genius. He made himself the protector of the Italian families who set themselves up as small speakeasies in their homes, selling whiskey at 15 cents a glass to bachelor laborers. He became godfather to Mrs. Colombo's youngest son when the lad made his confirmation and gave a handsome present of a $20 gold piece. Meanwhile, since it was inevitable that some of his trucks be stopped by the police, Genco Avendando hired a fine lawyer with many contacts in the police department and the judiciary. A system of payoffs was set up, and soon the Corleone organization had a sizable sheet, the list of officials entitled to a monthly sum. When the lawyer tried to keep this list down, apologizing for the expense, Vito Corleone reassured him. No, no. Get everyone on it, even if they can't help us right now. I believe in friendship, and I'm willing to show my friendship first. As time went by, the Corleone empire became larger. More trucks were added. The sheet grew longer. Also, the men working directly for Tessio and Clemenza grew in number. The whole thing was becoming unwieldy. Finally, Vito Corleone worked out a system of organization. He gave Clemenza and Tessio each the title of capo regime, or captain, and the men who worked beneath them the rank of soldier. He named Genco Abandando his counselor, or consigliere. He put layers of insulation between himself and any operational act. When he gave an order, it was to Genco or to one of the capo regime alone. Rarely did he have a witness to any order he gave any particular one of them. Then he split Tessio's group and made it responsible for Brooklyn. He also split Tessio off from Clemenza and made it clear over the years that he did not want the two men to associate even socially, except when absolutely necessary. He explained this to the more intelligent Tessio, who caught his drift immediately, though Vito explained it as a security measure against the law. Tessio understood that Vito did not want his two capo regime to have any opportunity to conspire against him, and he also understood there was no ill will involved, merely a tactical precaution. In return, Vito gave Tessio a free hand in Brooklyn while he kept Clemenza's Bronx fief very much under his thumb. Clemenza was the braver, more reckless, the crueler man, despite his outward jollity 
and needed a tighter ring. The Great Depression increased the power of Vito Corleone, and indeed it was about that time he came to be called Don Corleone. Everywhere in the city, honest men begged for honest work in vain. Proud men demeaned themselves and their families to accept official charity from a contemptuous officialdom. But the men of Don Corleone walked the streets with their heads held high, their pockets stuffed with silver and paper money, with no fear of losing their jobs. And even Don Corleone, that most modest of men, could not help feeling a sense of pride. He was taking care of his world, his people. He had not failed those who depended on him and gave him the sweat of their brows, risked their freedom and their lives in his service. And when an employee of his was arrested and sent to prison by some mischance, the unfortunate man's family received a living allowance, and not a miserly, beggarly, begrudging pittance, but the same amount the man earned when free. This, of course, was not pure Christian charity. Not his best friends would have called Don Carleone a saint from heaven. There was some self-interest in this generosity. An employee sent to prison knew he had only to keep his mouth shut, and his wife and children would be cared for. He knew that if he did not inform to the police, a warm welcome would be his when he left prison. There would be a party waiting in his home, the best of food, homemade ravioli, wine, pastries, with all his friends and relatives gathered to rejoice in his freedom. And sometime during the night, the consigliere, Genco Abandando, or perhaps even the Don himself, would drop by to pay his respects to such a stalwart, take a glass of wine in his honor, and leave a handsome present of money so that he could enjoy a week or two of leisure with his family before returning to his daily toil. Such was the infinite sympathy and understanding of Don Corleone. It was at this time that the Don got the idea that he ran his world far better than his enemies ran the greater world which continually obstructed his path. And this feeling was nurtured by the poor people of the neighborhood who constantly came to him for help. To get on the home relief, to get a young boy a job or out of jail, to borrow a small sum of money desperately needed, to intervene with landlords who against all reason demanded rent from jobless tenants. Don Vito Corleone helped them all. Not only that, he helped them with goodwill, with encouraging words to take the bitter sting out of the charity he gave them. It was only natural then that when these Italians were puzzled and confused on who to vote for to represent them in the state legislature, in the city offices, in the Congress, they should ask the advice of their friend, Don Corleone, their godfather. And so he became a political power to be consulted by practical party chiefs. He consolidated this power with a far-seeing, statesmanlike intelligence by helping brilliant boys from poor Italian families through college, boys who would later become lawyers, assistant district attorneys, and even judges. He planned for the future of his empire with all the foresight of a great national leader. The repeal of Prohibition dealt this empire a crippling blow, but again, he had taken his precautions. In 1933, he sent emissaries to the man who controlled all the gambling activities of Manhattan, the crap games on the docks, the shylocking that went with it as hot dogs go with baseball games, the bookmaking on sports and horses, the illicit gambling houses that ran poker games, the policy or numbers racket of Harlem. This man's name was Salvatore Maranzano, and he was one of the acknowledged Pezzo Novante, 90 calibers, or big shots of the New York underworld. The Corleone emissaries proposed to Maranzano an equal partnership beneficial to both parties. Vito Corleone, with his organization, his police, and political contacts, could give the Maranzano operations a stout umbrella and the new strength to expand into Brooklyn and the Bronx. But Maranzano was a short-sighted man and spurned the Corleone offer with contempt. The great Al Capone was Maranzano's friend, and he had his own organization, his own men, plus a huge war chest. 
He would not brook this upstart whose reputation was more that of a parliamentary debater than a true mafioso. Maranzano's refusal touched off the Great War of 1933, which was to change the whole structure of the underworld in New York City. At first glance, it seemed an uneven match. Salvatore Maranzano had a powerful organization with strong enforcers. He had a friendship with Capone in Chicago and could call on help in that quarter. He also had a good relationship with the Tataglia family, which controlled prostitution in the city and what there was of the thin drug traffic at that time. He also had political contacts with powerful business leaders who used his enforcers to terrorize the Jewish unionists in the garment center and the Italian anarchist syndicates in the building trades. Against this, Don Corleone could throw two small but superbly organized regime led by Clemenza and Tessio. His political and police contacts were negated by the business leaders who would support Maranzano. But in his favor was the enemy's lack of intelligence about his organization. The underworld did not know the true strength of his soldiers, and even were deceived that Tessio in Brooklyn was a separate and independent operation. And yet, despite all this, it was an unequal battle until Vito Corleone evened out the odds with one master stroke. Maranzano sent a call to Capone for his two best gunmen to come to New York to eliminate the upstart. Corleone family had friends and intelligence in Chicago who relayed the news that the two gunmen were arriving by train. Vito Corleone dispatched Luca Brasi to take care of them with instructions that would liberate the strange man's most savage instincts. Brasi and his people, four of them, received the Chicago hoods at the railroad station. One of Brasi's men procured and drove a taxicab for the purpose, and the station porter carrying the bags led the Capone men to this cab. When they got in, Brasi and another of his men crowded in after them, guns ready, and made the two Chicago boys lie on the floor. The cab drove to a warehouse near the docks that Brasi had prepared for them. The two Capone men were bound hand and foot, and small bath towels were stuffed into their mouths to keep them from crying out. Then Brasi took an axe from its place against the wall and started hacking at one of the Capone men. He chopped the man's feet off, then the legs at the knees, then the thighs where they joined the torso. Brasi was an extremely powerful man, but it took him many swings to accomplish his purpose. By that time, of course, the victim had given up the ghost, and the floor of the warehouse was slippery with the hacked fragments of his flesh and the gouting of his blood. When Brasi turned to his second victim, he found further effort unnecessary. The second Capone gunman, out of sheer terror, had impossibly swallowed the bath towel in his mouth and suffocated. The bath towel was found in the man's stomach when the police performed their autopsy to determine the cause of death. A few days later in Chicago, the Capones received a message from Vito Corleone. It was to this effect. You know now how I deal with enemies. Why does a Neapolitan interfere in a quarrel between two Sicilians? If you wish me to consider you as a friend, I owe you a service which I will pay on demand. A man like yourself must know how much more profitable it is to have a friend who, instead of calling on you for help, takes care of his own affairs and stands ever ready to help you in some future time of trouble. If you do not wish my friendship, so be it. But then I must tell you that the climate in this city is damp, unhealthy for Neapolitans, and you are advised never to visit it. The arrogance of this letter was a calculated one. The Don held the Capones in small esteem as stupid, obvious cutthroats. His intelligence informed him that Capone had forfeited all political influence because of his public arrogance and the flaunting of his criminal wealth. The Don knew, in fact was positive, that without political influence, without the camouflage of society, Capone's world and others like it could be easily destroyed. He knew Capone was on the path to destruction. 
He also knew that Capone's influence did not extend beyond the boundaries of Chicago, terrible and all-pervading as that influence there might be. The tactic was successful, not so much because of its ferocity, but because of the chilling swiftness, the quickness of the Don's reaction. If his intelligence was so good, any further moves would be fraught with danger. It was better, far wiser, to accept the offer of friendship with its implied payoff. The Capone sent back word that they would not interfere. The odds were now equal, and Vito Corleone had earned an enormous amount of respect throughout the United States underworld with his humiliation of the Capones. For six months, he outgeneraled Maranzano. He raided the crap games under that man's protection, located his biggest policy banker in Harlem, and had him relieved of a day's play, not only in money, but in records. He engaged his enemies on all fronts. Even in the garment centers, he sent Clemenza and his men to fight on the side of the Unionists against the enforcers on the payroll of Maranzano and the owners of the dress firms. And on all fronts, his superior intelligence and organization made him the victor. Clemenza's jolly ferocity, which Corleone employed judiciously, also helped turn the tide of battle. And then, Don Corleone sent the held-back reserve of the Tessio regime after Maranzano himself. By this time, Maranzano had dispatched emissaries suing for a peace. Vito Corleone refused to see them, put them off on one pretext or another. The Maranzano soldiers were deserting their leader, not wishing to die in a losing cause. Bookmakers and Shylocks were paying the Corleone organization their protection money. The war was all but over. And then, finally, on New Year's Eve of 1933, Tessio got inside the defenses of Maranzano himself. The Maranzano lieutenants were anxious for a deal and agreed to lead their chief to the slaughter. They told him that a meeting had been arranged in a Brooklyn restaurant with Corleone, and they accompanied Maranzano as his bodyguards. They left him sitting at a checkered table, morosely munching a piece of bread, and fled the restaurant as Tessio and four of his men entered. The execution was swift and sure. Maranzano, his mouth full of half-chewed bread, was riddled with bullets. The war was over. The Maranzano Empire was incorporated into the Corleone operation. Don Corleone set up a system of tribute, allowing all incumbents to remain in their bookmaking and policy number spots. As a bonus, he had a foothold in the unions of the Garment Center, which in later years was to prove extremely important. And, now that he had settled his business affairs, the Don found trouble at home. Santino Corleone, Sonny, was 16 years old and grown to an astonishing six feet with broad shoulders and a heavy face that was sensual, but by no means effeminate. But where Fredo was a quiet boy, and Michael, of course, a toddler, Santino was constantly in trouble. He got into fights, did badly in school, and finally, Clemenza, who was the boy's godfather and had a duty to speak, came to Don Corleone one evening and informed him that his son had taken part in an armed robbery, a stupid affair which could have gone very badly. Sonny was obviously the ringleader, the two other boys in the robbery his followers. It was one of the very few times that Vito Corleone lost his temper. Tom Hagen had been living in his home for three years, and he asked Clemenza if the orphan boy had been involved. Clemenza shook his head. Don Corleone had a car sent to bring Santino to his offices in the Genkopura Olive Oil Company. For the first time, the Don met defeat. Alone with his son, he gave full vent to his rage cursing the hulking sunny and Sicilian dialect, a language so much more satisfying than any other for expressing rage. He ended up with a question. What gave you the right to commit such an act? What made you wish to commit such an act? Sonny stood there, angry, refusing to answer. The Don said with contempt, And so stupid. What did you earn for that night's work? Fifty dollars each? Twenty dollars? You risk your life for twenty dollars, huh? As if he'd not heard these last words, Sonny said defiantly, 
I saw you kill Fanucci. <sighs> the Don sank back in his chair. He waited. Sonny said, When Fanucci left the building, Mama said I could go up to the house. I saw you go up to the roof and I followed you. I saw everything you did. I stayed up there and I saw you throw away the wallet and the gun. The Don sighed. Well, then I can't talk to you about how you should behave. Don't you want to finish school? Don't you want to be a lawyer? Lawyers can steal more money with a briefcase than a thousand men with guns and masks. Sonny grinned at him. I want to enter the family business. When he saw that the Don's face remained impassive, that he did not laugh at the joke, he added hastily, I can learn how to sell olive oil. Still, the Don did not answer. Finally, he shrugged. Every man has one destiny. He did not add that the witnessing of Fanucci's murder had decided that of his son. He merely turned away and added quietly, Come in tomorrow morning at nine o'clock. Jenko will show you what to do. But Jenko Abandando, with that shrewd insight that a consigliere must have, realized the true wish of the Don and used Sonny mostly as a bodyguard for his father, a position in which he could also learn the subtleties of being a Don. And it brought out a professional instinct in the Don himself, who often gave lectures on how to succeed for the benefit of his eldest son. Besides his oft-repeated theory that a man has but one destiny, the Don constantly reproved Sonny for that young man's outburst of temper. The Don considered a use of threats the most foolish kind of exposure, the unleashing of anger without forethought as the most dangerous indulgence. No one had ever heard the Don utter a naked threat. No one had ever seen him in an uncontrollable rage. It was unthinkable. And so he tried to teach Sonny his own disciplines. He claimed that there was no greater natural advantage in life than having an enemy overestimate your faults, unless it was to have a friend underestimate your virtues. The Cabo Regime Clemenza took Sonny in hand and taught him how to shoot and to wield a garrote. Sonny had no taste for the Italian rope. He was too Americanized. He preferred the simple, direct, impersonal Anglo-Saxon gun, which saddened Clemenza. But Sonny became a constant and welcome companion to his father, driving his car, helping him in little details. For the next two years, he seemed like the usual son entering his father's business, not too bright, not too eager, content to hold down a soft job. Meanwhile, his boyhood chum and semi-adopted brother, Tom Hagen, was going to college. Fredo was still in high school. Michael, the youngest brother, was in grammar school. And baby sister Connie was a toddling girl of four. The family had long since moved to an apartment house in the Bronx. Don Corleone was considering buying a house in Long Island, but he wanted to fit this in with other plans he was formulating. Vito Corleone was a man with vision. All the great cities of America were being torn by underworld strife. Guerrilla wars by the dozen flared up, ambitious hoodlums trying to carve themselves a bit of empire. Men like Corleone himself were trying to keep their borders and rackets secure. Don Corleone saw that the newspapers and government agencies were using these killings to get stricter and stricter laws, to use harsher police methods. He foresaw that public indignation might even lead to a suspension of democratic procedures, which could be fatal to him and his people. His own empire internally was secure. He decided to bring peace to all the warring factions in New York City and then in the nation. He had no illusions about the dangerousness of his mission. He spent the first year meeting with different chiefs of gangs in New York, laying the groundwork, sounding them out, proposing spheres of influence that would be honored by a loosely bound confederated council. But there were too many factions, too many special interests that conflicted. Agreement was impossible. Like other great rulers and lawgivers in history, Don Corleone decided that order and peace were impossible until the number of reigning states had been reduced to a manageable number. There were five or six families too powerful to eliminate, but the rest, the neighborhood black hand terrorists, 
the freelance Shylocks, the strong-arm bookmakers operating without the proper, that is to say, paid protection of the legal authorities, would have to go. And so he mounted what was in effect a colonial war against these people, and threw all the resources of the Corleone organization against them. The pacification of the New York area took three years and had some unexpected rewards. At first, it took the form of bad luck. A group of mad-dog Irish stick-up artists the Don had marked for extermination almost carried the day with sheer Emerald Isle élan. By chance, and with suicidal bravery, one of these Irish gunmen pierced the Don's protective cordon and put a shot into his chest. The assassin was immediately riddled with bullets, but the damage was done. However, this gave Santino Corleone his chance. With his father out of action, Sonny took command of a troop, his own regime, with the rank of capo regime, and, like a young, untrumpeted Napoleon, showed a genius for city warfare. He also showed a merciless ruthlessness, the lack of which had been Don Corleone's only fault as a conqueror. From 1935 to 1937, Sonny Corleone made a reputation as the most cunning and relentless executioner the underworld had yet known. Yet for sheer terror, even he was eclipsed by the awesome man named Luca Brasi. It was Brasi who went after the rest of the Irish gunmen and single-handedly wiped them out. It was Brasi operating alone when one of the six powerful families tried to interfere and become the protector of the independence, who assassinated the head of that family as a warning. Shortly after, the Don recovered from his wound and made peace with that particular family. By 1937, peace and harmony reigned in New York City, except for minor incidents, minor misunderstandings, which were, of course, sometimes fatal. As the rulers of ancient cities always kept an anxious eye on the barbarian tribes roving around their walls, so Don Corleone kept an eye on the affairs of the world outside his world. He noted the coming of Hitler, the fall of Spain, Germany's strong-arming of Britain at Munich. Unblinkered by that outside world, he saw clearly the coming global war, and he understood the implications. His own world would be more impregnable than before. Not only that, fortunes could be made in time of war by alert, foresighted folk. But to do so, peace must reign in his domain while war raged in the world outside. Don Corleone carried his message through the United States. He conferred with compatriots in Los Angeles, San Francisco, Cleveland, Chicago, Philadelphia, Miami, and Boston. He was the underworld apostle of peace. And by 1939, more successful than any pope, he had achieved a working agreement amongst the most powerful underworld organizations in the country. Like the Constitution of the United States, this agreement respected fully the internal authority of each member in his state or city. The agreement covered only spheres of influence and an agreement to enforce peace in the underworld. And so, when World War II broke out in 1939, when the United States joined the conflict in 1941, the world of Don Vito Corleone was at peace, in order, fully prepared to reap the golden harvest on equal terms with all the other industries of a booming America. The Corleone family had a hand in supplying black market OPA food stamps, gasoline stamps, even travel priorities. It could help get war contracts, and then help get black market materials for those garment center clothing firms who were not given enough raw material because they did not have government contracts. He could even get all the young men in his organization, those eligible for army draft, excused from fighting in the foreign war. He did this with the aid of doctors who advised what drugs had to be taken before physical examination, or by placing the men in draft-exempt positions in the war industries. And so the Don could take pride in his rule. His world was safe for those who had sworn their loyalty to him. Other men who believed in law and order were dying by the millions. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to join us tomorrow for yet another amazing story.